Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I hope you're doing well these two days before Halloweeny. So I hope you have your costumes all ready and a nice new coating of shellac on your teeth to ward off the carries. Just like to start the show by giving a serious shout out of encouragement to Kevin B., a listener of the show, fan of the show, who started chemotherapy for lymphoma on Monday. And uh, I hope it is going to go well as somebody who's had some experience with chemotherapy and radiation. Uh, my suggestion is to uh, take it easy, uh, respect your body, listen to your body. Uh, it won't hit you for a little while, at least it didn't for me, but uh, be aware that when it does, uh, it will not be wildly gentle, but it certainly is not as bad as it used to be, at least according to what I have heard about and what I understand. So I am incredibly sorry that you're going through this, uh, a younger man than I, and uh, uh, I, uh, I keeping fingers and toes crossed that all goes well for you. And uh, I also hope that you don't get the nurse that I had in chemotherapy who, when attempting to put the needle uh, into my vein, uh, apparently felt that she was... Uh, 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 dealing with an Islamic thief and attempting to take off my entire hand. So <laughs> I am incredibly sorry for what you're going through. Uh, be brave, stay strong, rest, and um, all will be well. I do very sincerely hope. So best of luck to you, Kevin, and uh, keep us posted about how it's going. Yeah, that, that's, that's going out to you, Kevin. And also uh, one of the tips I think Steph told me is uh, chips with very strong – what kind of dip was it to get rid of the chemo mouth, Steph? Oh, it was actually Satan's armpit and dip, <laughs> which is – no, it's weird. Like so – okay, boring stuff, right? So I – before Izzy was born, I was kind of packing on the pounds <laughs> quite a little bit. And I've always sort of been 212, 214, and then I went up to like 225, 226, and then I panicked, right? And then I dropped down to I think 198 or something like that, and – um and and that was all going well. Like, I sort of adjusted to it. But, man, chemo. You know, it basically feels like an evil penguin shit in your mouth. Uh, like, I just had the, the worst taste. It was like like having just licked a battery soaked in urine. And that was really, in many ways, other than the tiredness and the body of a Viennese schoolboy, that was really the worst thing for me, and the only thing for me that can I'm not saying this is, this is not, a, not a prescription, but the only thing that worked for me in terms of getting rid of the taste was um, like uh, rippled chips, just regular rippled chips, and the strongest onion dip that can be borne by a mortal body. And that um, did take away the taste while I was eating, and even for a short period of time after that. Unfortunately... Um, chip dip, you, you, you basically don't even need to eat it. You just apply it directly to your ass uh, and, and work it in and net it in because that's where it's going anyway, uh, just from the inside out. So I went back up. Oh, gosh, I think I gained about 10 pounds uh, over chemo because, you know, <laughs> I'm a contrarian. <laughs> Lose weight during chemo? No! <laughs> I'm going to become an onion-based life form. And... Um, so I yeah, put on about 10 pounds, and then I've just sort of recently, like over the last year, I've lost it back down to 197 or whatever. So, so it, you know, I'm not saying it's the healthiest way to deal with the bad taste, but uh, boy, 
I've never had anything quite like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if Beelzebub were to regularly produce a wet fart between my cheeks, uh, the other ones, uh, that would be somewhat similar. So that was my big symptom from it. And I hope that isn't the case with you. But, you know, if you feel like it, you might want to give it a try. Maybe not to the point where you're inserting your head into the bag with a face full of chip dip uh, and coming out and just basically licking it off yourself like Gene Simmons attempting to groom an eyebrow. It doesn't have to be like you're a hungry horse with a head in a bag, but uh, a little bit more measured, that was something that certainly uh, certainly helped me. Do you remember anything else from that, Mike? Any uh, any other tips? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. should have put some thought into it before the show. Um, well, I mean, the biggest thing that I took from you know your experience of having cancer, that's a weird thing to say, was, you know, don't automatically assume stuff is bad. You know, like, don't immediately assume something is going to be a negative. And it's a weird thing to say, like, diagnosed with cancer, don't assume this is going to be a negative long-term for your life. You know, it's uh, just thinking of the possible silver linings that things can have and how it can make you better or make your life better long-term and the different perspectives it can give you and the things that you wouldn't have gained or gleaned otherwise. It's... uh. I've really trained myself to kind of get in that mindset, and I found it to be incredibly helpful. And I think you'd exactly say the same thing, Steph. So. It's good to get the rational impatience of mortality before you're actually on your deathbed. Yes. Yes. You don't you want know, that cause... last-minute conversation where you're like, oh, I didn't get all that stuff done in my life that I wanted to get done. Crap. Goodbye. It's over. I've always been fascinated by people, you know, they say so-and-so does not suffer fools gladly. And it's supposed to be some cantankerous old diabetes kind of uh, character or personality. And of course, you know, raised in England, I've had to work to overcome some of my self-erasing spineless politeness memes or metrics. And uh, I found that having a could-kill-you disease was very important in giving me the impatience of mortality. And there's something, you know, for me, it, it, maybe it's, you know, the cancer thing, or maybe it's just being 48. Eh, something in me that is getting that I'm never going to learn piano, you know? <laughs> you know, Because so, when you're young, you've got all this shit down the road. You know, you know, I've always been interested in keyboards. You know, I can type. How much more difficult is the flight of the bumblebee? Well, quite difficult, in fact. And um, I'm never going to be x or y or z and um no, i'm never going to win american idol well actually that probably isn't affected with age but uh, so all of the there is a kind of sense that i mean you know even all going well i'm probably past the halfway mark right i mean twice what i am is old <laughs> 96 and um so past the halfway mark even though the first 15 years were largely, you know, oppressed throwaway time for me, past the halfway mark is, yeah, not going to get a bunch of stuff done. You know, close, close a bunch of doors, not, leaving, not leave them ajar, not maybe. Like, I have books in, like, like, where I live, I've got boxes of books, and they were like, I liked this book. I, I'll, I might read it again someday. <laughs> And the great thing about, you know, 48-plus life-threatening disease is, nope, <laughs> I'm not going to be doing that. that. I'm not, yeah, not going to read this book again. Like I've got this book called – I think it's called White Man's Burden, which is about um, uh, foreign aid. I read it years and years ago, 
And I'm like, oh, I should do a show on this. And I've sort of kept it around with my highlights and my post-its. And, and now I'm like, never going to do that show. It hasn't happened yet. Throw the book out. And I think that is something that if the younger you get that, I think the better off your life will be. Like the younger you get that you're going to die. I know this is like the least <laughs> positive speech for somebody going through chemo. But the young – I mean – Chemo and, and cancer, they, they really bring that right nose to nose with you. And the, the younger that you understand that you're going to die, the, the tougher but better your life will be. The tougher because when you get you're going to die, short-term gains become somewhat more important because you realize that in the long run, there are no long-term gains because, you know, as, as Keynes famously said, when someone said – well, he would say, well, this policy will benefit the economy in the short run – and then somebody said, but in the long run, and Keynes said, in the long run, we're all dead. And that's kind of true and um, kind of douchey. Again, you know, some people have theorized it's because he was gay that he didn't really care that much about the next generation because he didn't have any kids. Uh, but that's neither here nor there at the moment. But your life will be tougher when you get that you're going to die because – you have to get off your ass and make better decisions about your health, about your social engagements, about your hobbies, about your friends, about your education, about your career, about your life. You just you have to get off your ass and make better decisions because you can't sit in the soft, sticky, cobweb hammock of, I've got eternity, <laughs> cooking around in your brain. So your life gets harder in the short run, but I really genuinely believe it gets much more rewarding in the long run. If you like the, the younger that you really get that you're you're going to die, and so th that I think is is the big positive of something like that. And we'd all kind of like to get that philosophically, and in some ways I did. The very first video I ever did was called "Live Like You're Dying," you know, live like uh, you could come, you just came back from your deathbed. So it's been an important part of my thinking for quite a few years, but. When you get that you're going to die, you get dissatisfied with mediocrity. When you get that you're going to die, you say, this boyfriend or this girlfriend, you know, I don't really love them. And we're just kind of plodding through day to day. But I'm going to die. And wouldn't I like to taste true love before I'm dead? And, you know, the friends that maybe you've just hung out with a long time and everything's kind of easy but pretty predictable and nothing's really new and nobody's really encouraging anyone else for excellence or a challenge or anything like that. You say, well, you know, maybe I should start to push the envelope with these relationships a little bit and maybe I should challenge people more or confront people more or be honest with people more and say, you know, guys, I'm – kind of bored it feels like we just get together and do the same thing all the time but you know we're all getting older and maybe we should do something new maybe we should be more honest maybe we should talk more about our thoughts and feelings and we really connect and right you get bored of the mediocre you know if you you go to a bunch of sports games i mean i don't know why people over 40 are at sports games you know <laughs> fundamentally i mean watching other people do stuff is not the definition of living and I can understand it when you're young, but yeah, it just means when you get older, it's like, well, I've already watched sports. <laughs> you know, I've already done that. And there is some um, deeper and richer things that you could be doing. So 
it is challenging in the short run when you get the death cloak of mortality streaming across your vision and uh, blanking out the all-too-distant future wherein, like Magic Johnson, we lob the balls of our ambitions into the net that never is. And uh, it can be, and I think is, a very, very powerful a feeling, a very powerful liberation, and a very powerful moment that lasts and lasts and lasts when you really ned the gray dust of mortality into your skin. And so it is not the end of the world if it's not the end of the world. And it is an illumination if it's not endless darkness. So I hope that that helps and works for you, um, Kevin. And again, please keep us posted on how it's doing. And we've got our fingers crossed for you. Absolutely. Take care, Kevin. All right. Well, first today is Scott. Scott wrote in, and uh, Scott is actually a brand new father, like brand spanking new, like happened in the parking lot five minutes ago now. Uh, Sweet. <laughs> and uh, has some questions about parenting. Uh, he says, Steph often talks about self-knowledge. How is it defined or manifest in young children, and how do I know if I'm helping my daughter to develop it? Hmm. Great question. So, Mike, aside, how, how recent is this all? Yeah, I mean, uh, our daughter is one week and one day old uh, last Tuesday. So, uh, yeah, she's her eyes are open. Uh, someone's in there. And, uh, yeah, it's all, it's all very, very new. First daughter. So, yeah. Well, congratulations. I mean, Thank you. That's, so, that's so cool. Yes, it's really amazing. Having that, I mean, it is night and day. Like, I, there's no yeah. bigger change in my experience. So good for you. How's, how's the mom doing? How's the girl She's doing? Great. Yeah, they're both breastfeeding and just, um, just enjoying life. I mean, it's, it really is like the way life is supposed to be, you know, so it's pretty, uh, yeah. pretty special. Well, fantastic. I mean, the, the question of self-knowledge for children, I think is a completely fascinating one. And I, I think you're, you know, if you don't mind me saying so, wise to ask. And, <laughs> yeah. You know that that may be a form of self praise just because it's so interesting to me, yeah. Um, but I think it's it's a very important you know. So a child, you know. So the first step, of course, is getting to child to verbalize feelings, right? I mean, babies have no trouble, but they can't tell you what's going on. They just tell you, you know, right? Yeah, something going on, negative or positive, for the most part. But so you know, the first thing is to give to give the child feeling words, right? You do feel sad. Do you feel happy? Do you feel angry? Do you feel frustrated? Do you feel Amused resignation, actually, that's right. next year. But so you know, um, sort of tools. be free with, yeah, be free with your own feelings and model right everything you want from your children. You model first, right? Okay. And so if you say like I'm angry, I'm frustrated, and so on, then the child learns to associate words or you know. So I, I for me, you know, I, I sort of thought originally that I just have the emotional state and the child would get it, and there's some truth in that. But I think it's important to verbalize your feelings, and then you can get the child to verbalize her feelings. And I think that's, that's sort of step one. Now, once the child is able to verbalize feelings, the next step is to have the child understand that she can figure out the source of those feelings. That, to me, is self. Like, so the first step of self-knowledge is knowing you feel something, which is surprisingly difficult for a lot of people. <laughs> like, I feel happy. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and yeah. 
so once you get sort of accurate feeling words uh, being being expressed, then you get why do you think you feel that way or what what happened and why do you think you feel that way? I've not found helpful because my daughter didn't really understand it. But when I said what happened right before or did you feel anything right before? Okay. Or what did your body feel like right before you got frustrated or whatever, right? Sort of like uh, holding up a, a mirror sort of thing to the situation. Yeah, I mean, the whole – I mean, self-knowledge is knowing your feelings before – well, certainly before you act them out, right? So, you know, somebody who yeah, doesn't have yeah. self-knowledge, uh, you know, just notices that they punched someone and then feels angry. <laughs> you know, like the, the emotions are acted out in some ways before that person is even aware of yeah. the emotions ex- that they're experiencing. The, the first, so the first step of, you know, in towards self-knowledge is the person knows that they're angry. And the second step is, okay, well, what happened before you got angry? And, and then you get, why do you think you got angry, right? So, you, you know, I'm angry. What happened before you got angry? Well, this. Okay, well, did, did, why do you think that made you angry if it did or whatever? And, and getting the why, I think, is important because then you can figure out the triggers. And then... You know, infants are helpless in the face of their emotions. I mean, Im- infants are like to emotions as trees are to storms. You know, they, they bend <laughs> or they break or they don't, but they're just sort of helpless victims of, of the turmoil around them. But when you can identify the source of your emotions uh, and the triggers for your emotions, then – and then then comes the most challenging part. Once the child has said, it happens when this occurs – then you have to give them the purpose of self-knowledge because everybody wants self-knowledge, but nobody wants to act on self-knowledge, right? So let's say that she's got, I don't know, well, every time this friend is, is around, I feel anxious or I feel scared or I feel jumpy or I feel nervous. Well, it's great to know that, but the purpose of self-knowledge is to adjust your environment so that you're not just self-managing, Sorry, that's a complicated way of putting it. But, I mean, the purpose of feeling pain when you touch fire is to remove your hand from the fire. Right, it's a, a guidance uh, guidance mechanism. It's a guidance. And, and so, like, if the child says, I feel resentful going to grandma's because I always have to kiss her stubbly cheek and she smells <laughs> like old peppermints from World War One. Well, so most parents then say, well, basically, too bad you have to kiss her because I'm uncomfortable telling granny she needs breath mints or something right yes and so what that does is it tells the child that knowing the source of your feelings doesn't do any good because nothing will change as a result of that and that's when feelings tend to get cut off when feelings cannot manifest themselves into changed circumstances feelings tend to get sort of paralyzed and we get enough of that crap in terms of like well you got to go to school i don't like school it's boring too bad we paid the taxes, you have to go to school. And there's a sort of example of, well, it's boring and this and that. And then it, the feelings and the source of the feelings can't change the environment. And the best gift you can give to anyone in the pursuit of self-knowledge is to encourage them or help them. And of course, in particular, with your own children to define changes in the environment as a response to the self-knowledge, right? So, you know, it could be as simple as, are you cranky? Why do you think you're cranky? Well, I'm tired. Well, why do you think you're tired? Well, I don't think I got enough sleep. Why didn't you get enough sleep? Because I went to bed an hour later last night. And then, okay, so so going to bed an hour later makes you cranky. 
And then, of course, you have to change that, right? Or, you know, why don't you want to go visit your uncle? Well, you know, he's too rough with me. Okay, well, then you have to, we, we, or me as the parent when the child is young, I have to go into the uncle and say, listen, you know, my, my daughter is a bit anxious about your rough play, so you need to tone it down, right? Right. And that way, the child knows that her feelings will alter her environment. And that's the purpose of I me. Mean, why the hell would anyone want self-knowledge if it wasn't to change the environment? And, and people have this sort of Buddhistic, you know, go in deep until you can't even hear the echoes of your echoes, and it's all <laughs> internal, and you just try and come to equanimity and Zen-like feelinglessness about your circumstances. And that just seems to me an extraordinary amount of narcissistic bullshit. I think that the purpose of self-knowledge is to help you change your environment. It's like saying, okay, you, you got to study piano, but you can never touch a piano. It's like, well, but, but what? <laughs> what sense does that make? And so, so yeah, so th- those to me are the four steps. The first is to give the model of feeling words and give her the feeling words. The second is to say, what, um, what are you feeling? And then the third is to say, what came before you were feeling self-knowledge uh, and then the fourth is, and, and how is that going to change our environment? Because so many times we just expect the children to adjust to the environment. But the moment you demand someone adjust to the environment, you're saying, well, there's no point having self-knowledge. Because the point of self-knowledge is to use your self-knowledge to adjust your environment. And there's, you know, there's some adjustment to the self and all that. I'm not sort of saying it's only one way, but that's the major value. And that helps children really understand why self-knowledge is important. Yeah, I think um, that's that's very interesting. Uh, I agree with that. But then uh, what I'm trying to understand then is, uh, I mean, what are the signals if you're if you're getting it right, getting it wrong? I mean, if my daughter goes uh, away to her relatives for the weekend and uh, becomes introverted when she comes back, I mean, uh, are these like warning signals to you or? Do you pick up on these things or uh, – Well, no, but that's that's after the fact, right? Yeah. I mean you wouldn't go you, – I mean I wouldn't recommend sending your daughter off to relatives for the weekend without spending extensive time with the relative and the daughter together to monitor how things are. I don't mean from a paranoid standpoint or anything right, like that. Right, right. But you should know how the relative is with the child and you should also know how the child feels about the relative and you should adjust – the relative's behavior if the child is unhappy with something. Yeah, I think we've we've already uh, <laughs> we've already been doing that. She's only a week old, and we've already had uh, words with a uh, relative recently. And it's it's amazing to me how short a time it takes for people to start, uh, you, you know, becoming passive aggressive towards like an infant. And uh, for example, uh, uh, someone gave her a, a nickname that we considered to be sort of passive aggressive and negative, and we had to have words oh, yeah. sort of immediately. Uh, and the, and it's just alarming to me that we have spent so much time um, planning our behavior for the next few years and planning everything carefully of what we we're going to do. And then it's like, right, we really have to forget about social protocol here and be strong with people and and uh so you know i've started writing uh like a letter to some of my family who haven't met her yet like this is what we expect and blah 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 um but you you really have to sort of have courage and be quite assertive um 
so I, I think already we've uh, we've noticed that. So, but I, I just yeah, definitely your 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 first loyalty is to the quality of your child's experience of the world, and that's that's the selflessness that yeah. people don't really get. I mean, yeah, so maybe it's uncomfortable for you, like Isabella when she was, I think maybe two and a half or maybe three. The, a guy came over who was like basically ooga booga booga, you know, like just pretty intense and, and <laughs> yeah. could not meet her halfway, but attempted to sort of basically invade her neurological system with overstimulation. Right. And, uh, and he had a mustache and holy, I mean, for like a year and a half, she's like, oh, that guy's got a mustache. <laughs> you know, I don't know about the guy with a mustache. And that is, um, and he's a thoroughly nice guy. He just obviously has some, a little bit of tension around. Yeah. It just, uh, it just shows how, uh, I've just suddenly realized how, how careful you have to be. I mean, it's like the, the tiniest thing. You never know how it's going to affect someone, you know. Um, I th- I mean, yeah, I because think- with, with me, I always wanted to, you know, as, as a parent, you can easily overwhelm your child's body, you know, just in terms of like stimulation and all of that because they don't have a lot of filters and they're very – uh, focused on their surroundings so so you you can go ooga, ooga, you know and get them all kind of riled up and so on it's kind of a takeover and the, again i i think that the, the the sort of play and even roughhouse play can huge amounts of fun but you do have to meet the child halfway and there are some people who will um not meet the child halfway in other words not go halfway and wait for the child to reciprocate but just kind of keep going until they're sort of nose to nose with the child and <laughs> the child's got their eyes wide and are basically trying to pee on the person's chest to get them to move back <laughs> yeah yeah, I mean, um, so that this led me to the sort of second half of my question. Then is um, obviously you've got your physical environment, but uh, I think a lot of the reason people don't uh, sort of take children's needs first is they think, uh, you know, the world is harsh. Kids have to learn how harsh the world is, sort of thing. Mm. Uh, and um, you know when. When I'm sort, I feel like I'm preparing my daughter for society in a way, and it's uh, it's a hard question to answer. Like, to what degree do I teach her about cause and effect versus like obligation? Like, I I don't like the concept of obligation. Uh, I mean, like you said earlier, I, I was uh, brought up in the UK as well, and um, you know, there's a lot of that sort of etiquette, sort of uh, negating the the self. You know, you're you're we are this you're you're not an individual you know yeah don't make anyone uncomfortable because there are 80 million of us on a tiny island so right okay well that actually leads into um oh sorry scott i'll just mention uh, i'll just mention scott that leads into your second question which you wrote down it's uh should i teach my daughter to say please and thank you uh how does one do that without using the concept of obligation or subjugation right yeah, I mean, we, we've not had any particular rules about please and thank you, but I use please and thank you with my daughter all the time. And, you know, I mean, I mean, yesterday, um, we just we had like the most amazing evening. It was just so much fun. Uh, you know, Jenga blocks and conversations and uh, making silly pictures and stuff. And, you know, I like I, I took her to bed and, and um, just was cuddling. And I just said, oh, I said, you know, th- thank you so much for a wonderful evening. Like I I don't, want to, I don't want to sound like I don't have wonderful evenings all the time, but I mean, this was just great. You were just so much, so much great company, so much fun. And, you know, thank you. You know, thank you for that every day. And, uh, and that's, I mean, that's great. Uh, so, so showing appreciation, I think is important. And 
you obviously don't expect it from from babies or or even toddlers in particular. But I think when she was about, she just I think she just turned four, and I actually began to get a bit annoyed with her when she was giving me orders, so to speak. You know, Dad, get me milk. Now, right. when she's just learning how to speak, that's cute as Dickens, right? Like, right. wow, she knows how to ask for milk. That's amazing. <laughs> I was so excited by it, and I wasn't annoyed at it at all. Yeah. But if you trust your own emotions, and if you notice when you start getting annoyed, that's usually a sign that she's ready. Okay. And so, you know, and so, you know, I sat her down, and I explained to her, and I said, look, big difference. If I tell you to do something, Isabella, pick up your toys. What do you think? She's like, don't want to. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, but if I said, Isabella, it would be really helpful to me if you could please pick up your toys. She'd say, well, better, right? And yes. I said, so it's, it's different when you ask someone to do something, they're much more likely to want to do it than if you tell someone to do something. And when you tell someone to do something, they immediately just or instinctually they just push back because it feels like a very dominant position. And I said, look, I mean, when we're in a restaurant, I ask the waitress nicely for, for my food. I don't say, bring me soup, woman or man, <laughs> right? And so helping her to understand, like, why, why should children be polite? A lot of times it's because the parents feel awkward if they're not. And that's not a good reason. Be polite because otherwise mommy or daddy feel uncomfortable. It's not a good reason. Because it, it doesn't teach them anything other than be compliant to anyone who might feel uncomfortable. Make other people's discomfort go away. And I don't think that's a very healthy no, lesson then for you a just, child. Then you just learn to submit to whatever. Uh, yeah. And so I said, look, when you say to me, get me milk, you're not asking me. You, you're telling me to do it. And I said, I didn't mind that when you – in fact, I, I didn't mind it at all when you were younger. But now that you're old enough – if you really want me to want to get the milk, then if you say, Daddy, could you please, or something like that, please is a way of saying, could you do me a favor? And doing people favors is a lot nicer than obeying their orders. And so, you know, I appeal to her greed. Like, you, you know, you want your friends to, to do stuff. You want mommy to do this. You want daddy to do that. And the best way for that to happen is to ask. And and we know that's true because if I tell you to do something, you don't want to do it. So it, by appealing to her greed, so to speak, by saying this is how you can most beneficially get people to do stuff, then she has an incentive for sustained politeness. Uh, and, and it is – I think it is a fairly important thing uh, in, in relationships because politeness uh, signals not being taken for granted. And the moment that people feel taken for granted – then resentment builds up, and that's not what you want in your personal relationships, right? Yeah, I I agree with that. I think it's a sign of respect, but you know, it's it's um, it's one of those things that is uh, very fashionable to 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 sort of say there's no rules, do whatever you want, and uh, I, I think there's a difference between correcting her if she fails to say thank you please and just just letting her do it uh but, but no it's not a correction though i'm sorry, sorry to interrupt no, you but to me it wasn't a correction i was just being honest with her saying look if you if you just tell me to get your milk i really don't want to do it i, I don't mean in your example i just i just oh yeah j- j- oh you mean just correcting like what do we say yeah right. yeah exactly yeah um, like if i insert the mechanical word please here 
it's a magic thing that gets me what I want exactly. as opposed to what it means to say please. Yeah. I mean, I try never to teach her the form of anything, right? Because it's important to really understand the why behind it, right? Yeah. I mean, you can get any kid to say please. Just give them a piece of candy every time they say please. They'll walk around saying please all day long. It's really not that complicated. It's no more difficult than getting a dolphin to do a, to do a flip. Yeah. But getting a child to understand what please means and why it works and, and how it's beneficial do you think that this asking the question why all the time is, is the key to things or do you think children sort of naturally need to know why or they, they, they have or is it an empathy thing? I mean, what's your opinion on that? Do you mean why kids say why all the time? No, I mean, uh, if I, I mean, what the key to being a parent, uh, I think is to sort of guide rather than sort of push, uh, from what I can understand at the moment. And I just wonder if you think they have a, a natural curiosity to the, the way things work or if it's part of empathy. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I know a lot of parents have gone through this, you know, it's, it's 20 whys a minute, you know, why, 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 why? Yeah. My, my daughter never went through that. I mean, she's got a lot of curiosity. We talk about a lot of different things, you know, like yesterday, she's just asked me, well, who, who do you think the meanest man in the world is or ever was? <laughs> you know, chatted about that and so she's got you know lots of curiosity about the world but she never went through a why 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 phase i think that that in my opinion happens because children are skeptical and don't believe the reasons they're being given okay so it's it's a form of of resistance in a way well why why do i have to do this or why is that important and i think they feel that they're not being given answers that are honest that's interesting, yeah. And I think then you, you know, where you don't, where you don't get an honest answer, you tend to keep asking the question. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I, I've always found that there's the best way to satisfy curiosity is just with sort of relentless honesty, even if it feels weird. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I, I've gone down that road for myself the last couple of years, and this is why it's like strange for me now because since I met my wife, like. Four years ago, we've been married a year. It, you know, it's one of those things. We have a great relationship. We make each other better. Um, and that's, you know, discovering self-knowledge for me. And your shows as well, I've been following for a couple of years. And uh, this is all, like, new to me, you know. Mm. And sort of every example you've said tonight, it's, it's all sort of happened to me in my childhood. You know, it's like textbook uh irrationality you know and uh it's new to me it's like i've only really been sort of living consciously on purpose for a couple of years you know what i mean so right um it's exciting it's great i mean but it's hard (laughs) (laughs) and just just so you know although he doesn't sound excited he is from england that Scotland's. is Get it right. so Scotland. So <laughs> Scotland. See, basically, he just had an orgasm on the air, but he didn't that. you just oh, didn't even have a clue. Um, <laughs> right? <laughs> just think groundskeeper so. Welly. There you go. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Just think, but without the yelling. Actually, no. There are a couple of emotions that are acceptable in Scotland. Um, I think the most important emotion that's acceptable in Scotland is a giant flashing pain up your right arm as you have a heart attack at 45 from too much yeah. haggis. That's my, uh, I think, the most common sensation that's accepted in Deep fried haggis, Scotland. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Well, uh, was there anything else that you wanted to ask? Obviously, feel free to call back in any time. I mean, but these no, are that, certainly great questions. Been, uh, and I just wanted to compliment you and your wife on, on the approach that you're going to be taking. I think it's going to be, I mean, it's fantastic. It's so exciting. No, I mean, just thanks for, um, I mean, I, I've been donating for a while. And just thanks for having the, the shows have been uh, very helpful. Um, I take, I work away and I take the podcasts with me and everything. And uh, it's a good, good sort of compass. So uh, thanks. Keep it up. Well, thank you for your support of the show and for fantastic questions. And um, best of luck over the next little while. It's it's in a wonderful time. I look back on it with enormous fondness, uh, the early days. So, all right. Thank you very much. And nexty, nexty, next one, next, Phil. All right. Up next is our friend Max, who we met down in Texas at the Texas Bitcoin Conference. He wants to call you out on your white knighting stuff. So brace yourself. Um, he wrote Wait, it. first of all, for those who've not met Max, Max is actually named for his height. I actually <laughs> just thought he was two giant nostrils when I first met him. Uh, I couldn't quite figure out why I was being followed by two red voids. Uh, but uh, he is uh, he's a tall guy, is basically what I'm saying. <laughs> Max wrote in and said, There is no doubt monogamy is a higher cost on men in general, as we are built to spread our seed and women are built to be selective. To not acknowledge that fact is white knighting. Further, to teach women to be humiliated to find out the true nature of man is the opposite of real-time relationships. It makes it hard for her to hear his feelings and preferences and teaches her she should feel not worthy and insecure when a man's natural feelings are finally revealed to her after her father was forced to hide his true self from her mother because she felt so hurt to hear it. The cycle goes round. This was in reference to that um, sex at dawn polyamory conversation from a couple weeks back that we had on the show. Uh. Right. All right. I'm open, wide open to hearing. You've got, you've got the criticism. body armor strapped on, Steph. You ready for this? Yeah, yeah. No, no. Uh, take take the body armor off. You know, get, get, give me a flesh wound of healing. Um, I, I'm not sure I follow. If we could just not talk with reference to that conversation just because, you know, a lot of people may not have heard it or whatever. But No problem. Um, so I'm white knighting in what way again? Yeah, let me – Was um. Okay, so I, I, this comes as a general concern I have, an experience that my, my wife and I went through uh, pretty much as a result from reading uh, real-time relationships. Uh, I, I should mention that I'm, we're not polyamorous. I've never been in a polyamorous relationship. I'm not advocating polyamorous relationships or open relationships. Not left and right hand when you were a teenager, like you just stuck to one? Exactly. exactly. Okay, got it. Got it. Um, and so, but yeah, so in, in kind of going through the, the feelings of, of, uh, you know, real time open relationships, it's, you know, it's definitely, and it, it kind of dawned on me late and I'm embarrassed to say it's like I was 30 years old or so. And, uh, I was like, you know what? I got told that when I fell in love with a woman, I don't know if I was ever told explicitly, but I got told when I fell in love with a woman, I would only want to have sex with them and it would be, I'd be all happy about monogamy and, and those kinds of things. And having, fall in love with a woman, I now know that to be not true. And I still have those desires and those urges. And I, I, I felt some guilt about it for a time. And then I even started to uh, doubt myself. Wow, do I, do I really love this woman or am I in the wrong? Wow, this is scary. And I got past all that pretty quickly because I know I absolutely do. And I realized that uh, why have I been programmed to hide this? Why have I been programmed to not to hide my true self and to even be surprised by myself when I found that woman and, and was in love with her. And I kind of tracked it all back and, and, uh, and went through it. And I realized that, that, that I, I believe I've, I've observed this cycle in that women are generally to- or told or expected to like, because I mean, they are who they are. They're generally selective about sexual partners. 
Um, they know their feelings, and unless it's revealed to them the nature of man early in life, they go through their entire formative years and early dating with the expectation that a man is not going to look at members of the opposite sex uh, you know, in, with lustful eyes in the same way that they don't look with lustful eyes. And it hurts their feelings once they become uh, young women to find out the true nature of man. And I, I just think it's kind of it's sad that they should feel they should get they should be humiliated was the word used on that call that um, th- to find that out about man and to find out that they should start thinking that they're not worthy because a man feels that I think uh, sorry I'll reference that call again but I think you were, it was a Paul Newman quote you used and you said you know why go out for a burger when I've got steak at home and it's like well. That's not kind of fair because well, even the analogy doesn't hold because I'm sure Paul Newman, like everybody else, has had burger in their time, even though there's steak aplenty. Variety is valuable. And in the world of the sexual arena, uh, variety is especially valuable to, to men. And it's just sad that women find that out late. And it's even sad for, for guys to find that out late too. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I mean, it's very interesting, the stuff uh, that you're talking about. I mean, so for those right, who haven't um, – got that sort of under their belt um, very, very briefly. Uh, women have to be much more choosy because they have to put much more into uh, raising a child, right? I mean, just in terms of pregnancy and childbirth and breastfeeding and so on. And so women have to be a lot more uh, to, to choosy about about a mate. And uh, men proportionately put much less into raising uh, – to sorry, into creating a child, right? I mean it's like you know, eight and a half minutes and then falling asleep so the woman can't breathe. Uh, and um, so women have to be much more picky and men in general as a whole uh, tend to um, benefit from a different reproductive strategy, right? Yeah, well, there's also another important point there. In that, as you mentioned, we're kind of photocopying machines and we'd like to you know, reproduce as much as possible. A woman can only be impregnated by one man at a time. So that's another reason why she's selective for the genes, whereas a man can impregnate many women at a time. Therefore, there's no need for him to be selective. Right, 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 right. Now, that, that having been said, there are factors, I think, which stimulate a man's reproductive strategy around sort of spray and pray, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Because this is not um, the case all over the world. There are different cultures which have different reproductive strategies. So, you know, in Japan, it tends to be one kind of strategy. Say, in parts of Africa, it tends to be another kind of strategy. So, there is, and I'm trying to remember, Mike, maybe if you can just look this up for me. It's something like K1 or R1 reproductive strategies. And I'm going to just touch on this very briefly, but but and the reason I think it's important is that not all men are the same with regards to reproductive strategies. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm sure there's variations there, yeah. There's variations. So basically there's there's two poles of reproductive strategies. One is the spray and pray, right? You just you have enormous numbers of eggs and sperm and you just basically <laughs> a few of them will survive, right? Like I mean, how many tadpoles survive to being an adult frog i don't know like one in a hundred or something like that and uh you know sea turtles lay like crazy numbers of eggs and then like one grows to be uh, an adult and that's sort of one strategy and it tends to be you could say more primitive or whatever lower on the uh evolutionary chain Mm -hmm. 
And then there's another strategy, which is heavy investment in in children. And so you have few children, and you invest massive amounts of resources into them, and that's right. And so you know, if you look at a human being versus a frog, I mean, it's obviously very different, right? I mean, frogs don't even know who their kids are. Right. Um, and so if in, in my this is sort of my theorizing, those things I think are fairly clear biological facts, but um, in my way of looking at it, it has to do with whether there are, since K and R selection, K and R selection. Uh, and Mike, if you find a good paragraph about that, feel free to, to break in in the next pause and give <laughs> give a slightly better uh, explanation than I'm giving. No, it's in your window right now, if you'd like to take a screen. Oh, oh it's in my window. <laughs> But not my I have eyes under 40 window. I can read it if you want. Okay, I got it. Our selection. So as the name implies, our selected species are those that place an emphasis on a high growth rate and typically exploit less crowded ecological niches and produce many offspring, each of which has a relatively low probability of surviving to adulthood. High R, low K. By contrast, K-selected species display traits associated with living at densities close to carrying capacity and typically are strong competitors in such crowded niches that invest more heavily in fewer offspring, each of which has a relatively high probability of surviving to adulthood, low R, high K. In scientific literature, R-selected species are occasionally referred to as opportunistic, whereas K-selected species are described as equilibrium. Now, human males go along this spectrum as well, Mm -hmm. because uh, in various cultures, there is a higher likelihood of male investment and involvement in raising offspring. And there's a, 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 even, it can even translate into um, the degree to which in various societies women have eggs that can split, right? I mean, it changes depending on where you go in the world. So if a man is brought up in a K-selected, right, in, in heavy investment, uh, slow growth, fewer offspring. If a man is raised in that environment, then he will lean much more towards that emotionally, culturally, and so on. We have the capacity. This is the amazing thing about, about us as a species. No, it's not just us, but I think it, it really reaches its culmination in us, is that we can adapt on the fly. We don't need genetics because we have epigenetics. We have uh, social adaptability and so on, right? I mean, if... If local customs were like temperature, we couldn't adjust. Like you can't take a frog and throw it in the Arctic and have it thrive. And you can't take a polar pear and put it at the equator and have it thrive. But you can take a child and have it raised in just about any culture and it's going to adapt and survive. Uh, And uh, so human males go along the spectrum from, you know, heavy and it's not just biologically, but also culturally, heavy K and heavy R selection, right? And so I don't think that it's necessarily true of the nature of man to be, you know, well, you know, men are uh, are selected and and women are K-selected. I think that it depends a lot on the kind of culture that you're brought up in. And men in general also will will adapt to, to what women want. That's sort of the nature of the beast given the disparate investment in offspring. So I think if a man is raised in a heavy uh, case-selected and investment-selected environment, and that's what women want, I think that's more like it was going to be. Now, the question to come back to you is, do you think that you had, Max, in your upbringing, any social cues that may have made you more 
are selected, in other words, quote, indiscriminate, and less K-selected? There's, um, there's a couple of different aspects to that. I'll just, I'll just back up one step if I can just to share some thoughts on that. I have kind of heard of that, um, that aspect before, and I have no doubt across you know, the male species there is uh, that kind of trend. Um, what, what, what I hang on, what, I got, what's my thought? Uh, f- from one perspective, it only really matters in what's in the, the in the generalization between men and women for the purposes of this conversation. I think uh, that if if there's you know in, if you take the, the the median man and the median woman in these spectrums, if there's a higher cost to monogamy let's say for the median man versus the median woman then that would just be useful for both genders to know about up front about their own natures the other thing i wanted to mention is is that i've, I've heard the, the argument that um sometimes it's to do with uh physiology so i've, I've heard this argument and i have no idea if it's true but uh, in one of the books i've read it suggested that um the, the size of the the man's testicles actually changes this because the larger the testicles, the more sperm he creates. And when he um, has sex with a woman, if he puts too much sperm in her, it actually becomes so acidic in there that it, uh, it become, she becomes infertile from that particular um, session of sex. Whereas if there Wait is a, a second. I'm sorry to interrupt your thought. I mean, it sounds like you're describing some evil superhero. <laughs> Acid sperm! <laughs> That's the, I the shake guy. your hand. It melts with my fertility. <laughs> I just sort of wanted to. I, just, I had to get that out of my head. Giant ball man. <laughs> I, I walk through walls because I am crawling with acidic sperm. <laughs> I am so fertile, I kill all that I come in contact with. It's an odd definition of fertility, but... Okay, I think it's out of my system, so... Okay, um, good. Go giant, giant ball man, he's done. We've dealt, dealt with him. So <laughs> Rolling into town! <laughs> uh, yeah, so... so they did that. Anyway, this, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but this argument is that big balls, lots of sperm, too acidic for the female, and actually it's beneficial to that man's reproductive uh, likelihood if that woman actually has sperm from another man inside of her because the sperms attack each other and kill out and the, and the acidity goes down. Uh, anyway, not sure well, if that's... And, and as you know, I'm sure you know, the foreskin is partially developed to hoover out another man's sperm from the vagina, right? Yeah, yes, yes, yes. So that's, there's an interesting thing that the, the, the idea of where you fit on the spectrum of, sorry, was it R and K? Um, yeah. it can be, there can be two aspects there. There can be one, there can, there can be a physiology thing, and I'm not sure if it's true or not. I just heard that once. And I've just heard this other aspect, which you're suggesting is it's more cultural or upbringing. Um, I don't know about more. I'm just saying that there is a factor. And so not all men. Right? So why is it that, that boys raised without fathers tend to be promiscuous and why is it the girls raised without fathers tend to be promiscuous because being like not having a a father around clearly delineates r as the reproductive strategy why because there's no dad so clearly parental investment is not where you're going so promiscuity is the key whereas if you have a stable father around that signals to the offspring that you're in a case selection environment and therefore you're going to have sex later you're going to have sex protected you're not going to have kids you can't afford you know all that kind of stuff it's, it certainly could be that i could give you a and i don't know if it's true or not but i could give you another argument that could be it could be something else as well um go on i'll, I'll go on well i mean it could it, it, in the environments where dad's not there there is probably the scenario where that well this could be a scenario where um you know either mother well for a dad may have cheated and that's why the family was broken 
or it could be that um, certainly my mother might uh, be telling the children, male or female, that um, you know this is what to expect from life. You know, men run off and men cheat and they go everywhere or whatever else. And maybe that's the factor why. I don't know. No, but that's still – that's another way. Basically, we're both saying the same thing, right? So if, if there's a strong tendency for men to cheat, then they're doing our selection. And if the mom is saying, well, men just, you know, they'll have sex with you and they'll leave, what she's saying is we have R-selected men around, not K-selected men or K-selecting men, sorry. Yeah, well, there's the manifestation of the cheat. But the question is, is let's say in that held together environment, that the, the mother and father are still together, there was never any cheating and, that what was, and that's how they were raised in a monogamous relationship. Uh, is, it, is it that the, the nature of the man has changed or is it the, the man, the little boy and the little girl just grew up with the expectation that – um, you know, I'm, you're going to conform to this culture, uh, and, and that's and that's. I think that's a pretty important distinction to know whether or not the nature has changed, or whether or not you just become accustomed. The, the, the little, no, no, the but it's not just culture. Up. I'm sorry, it's it's not just culture. So women, uh, sorry, girls who don't have a father around hit puberty sooner than girls who do have a father around. That's interesting, right? Their bodies, their hormones, their entire reproductive system is aligning itself to are selected rather than K-selected because the entire physiology is getting the guy not around are selected. So they're like, well, if we're doing spray and pray, I guess I better hit puberty earlier, right? Like it's more than just what's going on in the mind. The entire body reacts. And I think we'll find lots more as the sort of human genome project continues. We'll find lots more genetic changes that occur to adapt a body to are selected rather than K-selected based upon the familial and social and cultural cues around. But it, it literally changes the body. Yes, that's, that's really interesting. We are incredibly adaptive people, are we not? Oh, we are. Like, this is, you know, when, this is why when people talk to me about human nature, I'm like, God, go read some biology. <laughs> I mean, right. Don't give me this human nature at all. I mean, it's, uh, it's nonsense. So is it, uh, let's go back to the point of, I mean, I – does it matter? Or are you suggesting that? Let me think how I want to phrase this. But I would suggest that there is a whether either way, but given the same environments or whatever else, there is um, a more of a feeling in men to or to want to be not monogamous compared to women. I think that's true in the in the general world. Maybe the origins are what we've been talking about here. Does it really matter in terms of? You know, that, those real-time relationships and man being able to share those feelings with his wife without her feeling humiliated or um, betrayed or something just because being found out that that's his nature. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough call. I, I don't have any big answers to this. There's something I read many, many years ago. Like, okay, so tiny bit of background. So I grew up in this fairly crappy little Estate. Estate is the wrong word because it makes it sound like Downton Abbey. But um, in this little apartment in, in London and in the basement, we found like giant stacks. Somebody was throwing them out, giant stacks of Reader's Digest. Reader's Digest had a huge influence on me when I was growing up. I learned a lot from Reader's Digest and how dramatic real life can be. How much laughter is the best medicine and what life is like in uniform. <laughs> <laughs> things like that. But um, one of the things that I remember um, was, you know, a, a question of honesty, right? So, you're, you know, and this is dating the entire magazine or I guess whatever it was, magazine. And the question was, you know, you're sitting in 
you're sitting in the chair and you're thinking how great Raquel Welsh looks in a bikini, right? Mm-hmm. Back, you know, you'll have to look her up. I mean, she did look pretty spectacular. Oh, no, I've, I've seen anyway. her. She's a hottie. Yeah, no, I just mean for other people <laughs> uh, <laughs> who, who only know her as, um, you know, the wizened love interest of wizened guys but uh, in movies. But now if your wife comes up to you and says, what are you thinking? Do you say, I'm thinking of how incredible Raquel Welsh looks in a bikini? Or? It's an interesting question. <laughs> what do you think? What's the or? Do I say that or what? I'm thinking about how much my life has been enriched by knowing you. (laughs) 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 Now blow me. No, but I mean, (laughs) do you, I mean, do you, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. This, I mean, yeah, this is, uh, and this is like one of the really, like when it comes to real-time relationships and and, uh, to such a fantastic book, by the way, thank you. And uh, it's helped my relationships considerably. Um, and, you, and yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch of questions down this line. It's like, you know, your, your wife is eight months pregnant, as mine is right now. And she looks and says, do you find me sexy? It's like, what do you say to that? <laughs> um, there's, there's all these there's, – how truthful do you get in these um, uh, real-time relationships on truth? Well, but I, I would say that, I mean, a sensible woman, you know, and I apologize if this goes against sort of what your wife has been saying or whatever. Yeah. But – you know, in my opinion, uh, a sensible woman would not ask that question. Yes, and I have a sensible wife, fortunately. No, listen. I mean, if 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 I show a picture of myself at eighteen, you know, with smooth, clear, beautiful skin, weighing a trim one hundred and eighty pounds of water polo, long distance running, and uh, swimming team muscle, and say, "Do I look better now or when I was 18? That I'm an idiot for asking that question, right? Right. Of course I look better now. Who could doubt it? <laughs> well, actually, I did until YouTube went beyond 240p, and then I would jump forward in age about 400 years. Um, so, of, of course, I looked better when I was 18 than I look now. I mean, <laughs> it, that would be insane to think otherwise, right? Right. And so, of course, a woman – I mean, unless you have some bizarre bowling ball fetish and, and just, like, get really turned on by tiny bladders and back pain – I mean, it, it, of course a woman's not going to say, am I sexier now that I, <laughs> I have a giant ball of life uh, hanging off my spine? I mean, it's it, – it, yeah, of course not, right? So, I mean, I don't think, it's, I don't think a sensible woman would ask that. Um, and, and to me, the question to, that I would really want to know if my wife asked me that, she didn't. But if my wife asked me that, I'd say, what, what, why, what are you getting at here? All right. Right, like no, no. Why is this? You know, why is this important to you? What, 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 what are you feeling insecure? Are you feeling right? And so, you know, you remind your wife how beautiful she is, and pregnant women are beautiful. Right. And so, I, you know, I to get to the real, to get to the real issue. Now, if you find yourself constantly fantasizing about Kim Kardashian in a vat of butter, then. You know, you might have something to examine within. I ask yourself. you not to talk about that on air, Steph. You you promise me. No, you said don't demonstrate it on air. Oh, right. Would you have With the my webcam going? Somewhat hairy cleavage. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> uh, Kim Karstefian. Um worst and least well received sex tape ever was me with that watermelon. Anyway, <laughs> so 
the fact that I don't know people in marriages occasionally think attract like thoughts of attraction to other women or other men. I mean, it happens for women too. I mean, I don't know. That's isn't that sort of so taken for granted that you just wouldn't even talk about it? I mean, why? Why? It's not like there's some mystery, horrible dishonesty that's going on uh, in the relationship. It's just well, it, my it thought about it. I mean, it's an interesting question, and I don't know the degree to which you would or wouldn't talk about that. It's never really come up in my marriage. I don't want to say, well, it's never come up in my marriage, so that's all right. But that, that's um, the catch. It, it is, and it isn't understood. I'll give you an example. You can imagine a group of girlfriends sitting around, uh, and you know, husband's uh, birthday is coming up, and one of the girlfriends. Wait, wait, wait. Says, Sorry. Wait. Hang on. Hang on. Are they practicing French kissing? <laughs> no. <laughs> They're just at lunch. Okay. I will. Clothes. I will try to keep paying attention, but I'm just telling you that's a black mark against it for me. Okay. But go ahead. So, a group of women sitting around. Uh, one of the women says, "My husband's birthday is coming up. What should I? What should I get him?" One girl says, um, "Oh, why don't you go and invite a, another girl into the relationship and give him a threesome? I bet he'd love that." She ah! the wife 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 rolls her eyes and says, "Oh yes, of course. I bet he would." Joke, laugh, no problem. It's completely understood that, that he likes it, but that's not that's a joke, right? Have you I mean wait, wait, Max. Yeah. I mean, outside of a porn movie, <laughs> have you ever have you ever uh, heard a woman say that? Let's like invite him. No, they, like, they, were, they, they weren't saying it seriously. We it just it's a joke. The point is it could oh, okay, be said. Okay, okay. In there. I'm not saying it. the point is it could be said, and the woman's reaction would be roll eyes, yeah, I bet he'd love that. That's never gonna happen, move on. Right? right. It's they, they accept that that's the guy's like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, love, a, of course. He yeah. loved that. That's not going to happen. Let's talk about right. you know a, a new hammer. Okay. So now let's say the guy trying to attempt real time relationships. So she says, "What do you want for your birthday?" He says exactly the same thing. Does he get rolled eyes now? No. He gets. I can't believe you'd say that. How hurtful is it that you would say that? That's humiliating that you've just said that. I'm like, well, hang and, on a minute. You accept that this of, is my like, nature. No, 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 no. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Because, look, a threesome is a very different thing from thinking about how great Raquel Welsh looks in a bikini. Like an actual threesome is is very different. Like it, it's – I mean to, to use an in, 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 inelegant analogy, like if I tell my wife I'd like to go and play some – like I'd go to learn some karate. Mm-hmm. Or however you pronounce it, I always feel like pretentious, <laughs> like I'm Ross from Friends or something. But let's say I want to go learn some jujitsu, right? And she's like, "It's a sport, and you know, exercise and health and all that." Oh yes, I remember what I said. <laughs> but um, uh, and then I say, "I want to go and beat up people." I mean, those those are two very different things. Yeah, I'm not comparing what they said compared to the Raquel Welsh scenario. I'm saying that you know, the, the girl, the girlfriend sitting in the group of girls talking about what to get the husband for his birthday said it and elicited one response. And the guy said exactly the same thing and elicited a totally different response. No, no, but the, the, girl, the women were joking. No, I mean, the, the point is, in the example, she, she, rec- she rolled her eyes and she recognized that, yeah, my husband would love that. I get that. I understand that about him. I get it. When the guy says, oh, you're right, I would love that. I'm not expecting it. I'm just saying I would love that. Some women, not all women, but they would feel – they would have hurt feelings. And that's what I'm talking about. Well, wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. Ignored. Are you saying – wait, Max. Are you saying that if your wife said, if you could order me up one David Beckham to join us Saturday night, that would be thrilling for me, that you wouldn't be upset and offended? 
I mean, de- depending. In, I mean, depending in context. Well, I would be surprised because I don't think that that's necessarily uh, what she wants. And we, we have kind of conversations like that, and she doesn't actually, you know, go down that path. Oh man, do not do not underestimate the degree to which women can get their kink on. Oh no, and I, and I agree. <laughs> I, I mean, agree. just just read some of women's erotica, and it's like, oh my god. <laughs> I mean, women women have got some serious humpback freak camels. Dragging them across the sex desert. I'm telling you, uh, you know, I yeah, just I'm just in my experience and thoughts. I mean, there's there's some uh, uh, there's some left turns at Albuquerque. No, I <laughs> get it. Of- I get it. I certainly didn't marry uh, someone. <laughs> I don't even know what it, I think. Yeah, the Victorian is the word. You, I think I've heard you use once before. Yes. No, mm. I, I get that. I, I totally get that. But I'm just, you, you know, do you, do you disagree with my point that there's this, um, in answer to your questions, like we, it's kind of accepted, like people kind of know that, you know, I'm saying it is known and it is not, and it is unknown. It's known that, yes, I, I get that, you know, some women might think I, I get that my husband would want that. However, it's also kind of accepted that he's, he's not to, not to um, even bring it up. He's not to act upon it. He's not to reveal it to me. His job is to hide that from me. And that's the part that I have the issue with. But I, I, but I, I think that if if a man really wants a threesome, that is an indication that there's a problem with the relationship. I mean, not like I find the idea sexy in an abstract way, right? But I mean, if he genuinely like, God, I can't wait. You know, I, I, Jane Fonda wrote about this that when she was younger, she was dating some French director and had threesomes, and it was just gross and horrible. And, I, and again, I'm just from what I've read and what I've heard, and people who've sort of gone through it just find it kind of tawdry and, and messy and, and all that. So if you really, really do want to have a sex with someone alongside your wife or your husband, I, I think that is something to talk about. I, did you know what I mean? No, I, I totally get what you mean. I totally get what you mean. And, and I'll, even, I'll, even, I'll definitely meet you halfway and I'll say that as opposed to, it's kind of like, hmm, what do we think? It's like, I want the chocolate bar, but I recognize that I shouldn't have it because I'm going to whatever you know, get diabetes. If I want a chocolate bar every day, I recognize I'm going to get diabetes, so I choose not to. But just acknowledging the desire is, is even, not even suggesting that it be done, just acknowledging the desire. Again, just wanting to be known and understood and have your partner you know, into your mind and, and, and understand all of your thoughts and desires. Not necessarily See, suggesting I, I you can't think action on it. I don't think I can even calculate the amount of dollars that I would pay to not have a threesome. Like, I don't think there's enough money in <laughs> in the world. Uh, like, I guess I would just, oh, my God. I mean, that just, to me, would be a nightmare. Like, again, I can understand in an abstract, you know, particular reproductive strategy kind of way. It's like, ah. But, oh, man, I just, <laughs> I mean, it's an odd thing to talk about. But it's like, there's just no amount of money in the world that's high enough that would that I wouldn't pay to not have that i mean uh so you know i I think if a man is really like god you know if i don't have a threesome before i'm dead i just haven't lived um i think that maybe a person who entered into a monogamous relationship a tad prematurely right yeah uh, let me let me let me kind of sort of cut to the end here and i'll just i'll share um an experience that uh my wife and i had not a sexual one (laughs) it's a conversation (laughs) um and it just it, it really really helped me and even though there was some kind of a growth process to go through, and even a, a, it definitely was it was hurtful for a time, but I think our relationships are much better on the other side of it. And and that is that I, I think I was coming from the perspective of, and she was coming from the perspective of, and that's all goes back to our parents and upbringing, is that I, I kind of disagree with you a little bit. It's like I think it's more of an, a, a more, it's like the natural feeling we've 
like I think it's more of a natural feeling for a guy to sort of have that desire, not necessarily do all the, the equations and, and think that it's actually worth it, but just have the desire of then women, right? And I think that it's kind of like to be acknowledged that this is a, a it's, it's more of a gift. It's a bigger gift that a man gives a woman than it is a, a gift that a, a woman gives a man, that of monogamy. Because, mm. and, and when, and so when, anyway, when we're kind of having this conversation and, and, and thrashing it out, at the end of it, it, rather than like, how dare you, you're childish, you're immature, you're stupid, you're going through a phase, don't ever bring that up again, you're just wrong. When it was seen as, you know what, I kind of get that men are different than guys. I understand that they want more sexual variety than women. I get that. And I really appreciate you because you are giving me a gift that, that I certainly, like it's uh, as a much higher cost on you than the same gift that I'm giving you. And I really appreciate that. And it made it, made it so much, uh, I, was, I was so much more joyful in giving that gift when it was seen as a gift, as opposed to being told I'm childish and stupid for being, um, you know, being a man who's the, you know, that kind of that, that kind of angle. So, in in aggregate, it's harder for men to be monogamous, so they're bestowing more of a gift. Yes, I think on so. that, right? So, like, I mean, it's it's uh, less pleasant to carry a baby than not carry a baby. No. And so, you know, no, the gift and- that the woman gives is, you know, <laughs> having, you know, bearing the baby, giving birth to the baby breastfeeding and exactly. all that. So that's a gift that the woman gives the man, which is one-sided. And then the, the gift that the man gives the woman is is um, monogamy. And, and again, it's one is binary and one is not, but is that sort of, I mean, that's just exactly. one of exactly. the in, in the same way that I, that I thank of. her for, in the same way that I thank her for, you know, carrying a baby and doing all those things, she thanks me for, for monogamy. And it makes it so much easier to give that gift. It makes it so much easier for me. Like it just, and I'm sure it makes it easier for her to, and not that she had the choice, but, but you know, it makes it more joyful for her to carry our baby, knowing that, she, that I'm so appreciative of that fact. And for all those changes that are going through her body, she, appreci- she appreciates that I appreciate it. And it just, it made it a lot better for us. And uh, when just that original call, the, the, the fact that most men can't talk about this with their wives because they'll feel humiliated that, or they'll feel like burger instead of steak. And I just I think that women sell themselves short because it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that you know you're not enough or you're not good enough. It just means that as a generalization, men like variety in this realm, and you should never you should never think of yourself any less. And I think the fact that women don't kind of get this early on, and and I think most like you know husbands and wives don't kind of convey this to their children, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know, but. I think that uh, sadly, like a, a, a young girl will get to the age of like you know, 16, 17, whatever, start dating, and she'll be so hurt. Even if she's lucky enough that the guys in high school and college never cheat on her, she still sees that guy do the big double take when the girl with the big tits walks down the other side of the street. And she says, yeah. I don't feel like that. He's doing that. Maybe I'm not worthy. And it affects their self-esteem. And I, I just think it's a really bad thing that this kind of thing isn't discussed more openly, that as a generalization, men are like that. And it's not to the detriment of the women. It's not because they're yeah, and, and not take it personally, men are basically just biological creatures with testicles for eyeballs. Exactly. And um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's a, that's a – I think that's a that's a good point. I mean, I I can't for the life of me imagine why mir- mirrored sunglasses were invented, except for that very <laughs> point that you can rotate your eyeballs around like some sort of sea slug uh, without getting the ire of your date uh, up. And uh, yeah, I mean, like it or not, men are scanning for attractive females, fertile females. I mean, that's that's the that's the gig. Now, again, I I was raised in a very spray and pray reproductive environment. You know, no no dad around and no dads around at all. 
So, you know, I was uh, not right. So uh, I sort of recognized that for me, um, monogamy was not something that I was particularly selected for. I mean, I love it now, but that was quite different. But uh, I was very much uh, selected uh, for R, for like spray and pay rather than for K. Now I've moved over to K because you can, you know, do all of these things uh, with, you know, correct self-knowledge and, and love and all that. But yeah, I think I, I, there is in general this demonization of men as a whole in society. And there is this – along with that comes the demonization of male sexuality. And I think it's tragic. I think the degree to which gender sexuality is not respected for what it brings to the table, on the table, over the table. Anyway, but for what, for I, I think that for either gender, the, you know, the idea that you – know, the sort of stereotype of female sexuality that it's about – connection and candle lights and staring into each other's eyes and gentle rhythms and all that kind of stuff. Uh, whereas male is like, you know, por- porn lighting and hammering and, you know, that sort of stuff and, and cold. And, and I, I just think that's sad all, all the way around. I think that anything that sets agendas against each other or, or promotes skepticism or cynicism or a negative view of the other gender as a whole is really, really tragic. I mean, we were designed to be more than just physically compatible. And uh, given that in the modern world, the heavy investment, the K reproductive strategy is the way to succeed as a whole. Um, And given that that requires a a very strong pair bond between the husband and the wife, anything which undermines that pair bond promotes the state. I mean, tragically. And this is why leftists tend to promote that which disrupts the pair bonding of human beings because a government is heavily necessary is heavily necessary in an our selected environmental strategy a reproductive strategy so the spray and pray requires the government because we as a species don't do much until we're like at least 15 right i mean which is crazy late right i mean horses can be born walking we take like a year a chimpanzee is fully independent at 10 months. I went into all this in a recent show, but so when you have a R selected, right, that there's a spray and pray selected species, you have to grow the state because the human children can't be birthed like tadpoles because you just, you need so many resources for each child. So if you want to grow the state, you attack the pair bonding of human beings because then people have kids they can't afford. And nobody wants to see kids starving. And, you know, the, the image of, well, we're going to take this child away from this irresponsible mother who has no one around to give her resources and give that child to a responsible couple who want kids or is infertile or something. Well, that, you know, it tugs at the heartstrings and, and is considered horrible punishment and the woman sobbing and this and that and the other. And the child is, oh, mommy, I won't be bad. Or, you know, whatever happens, right? I mean, it used to be the case that women would just give the child up for adoption if they had a a child that they couldn't uh, afford. And that limited that. And then there was, you know, ostracism and and so on. And and your reputation was ruined and good men probably or might not want to marry you. You'd have to move away or something, which, you know, I I did this. uh, I've got a a podcast coming out, uh, The Philosophy, uh, Philosophy of Downton Abbey, which is really along those lines. And so if you want to grow the state, if you want to put situations in place that require massive growth 
in the size and power of the state and the redistributionist system, then all you need to do is hack at the bonds that unite husband and wife and just wait for the inevitable fallout. The tragedy is how, gosh, many, many years ago, I read a book, the, the Thomas, a series of books called The Thomas Covenant Chronicles by Stephen R. Donaldson. And in it, there was just this doom-like sense. It was a fantasy novel. And there's a doom-like sense of how hard it is to, to build things that are beautiful and how easy it is to destroy them. You know, like how many billions of years of evolution is required to produce a beautiful meadow? How many matches in a dry season are required to burn it down? Well, one. It's so much easier to destroy than it is to create. And the pair bonding case selection strategy that evolved for thousands and thousands and thousands of years for humanity has basically been more than half torched in 50 years. So the, the, the rise of, of feminism, the rise of the welfare state, the rise of contempt for men, the, you know, and all that. I mean, this hacking at the roots of the pair bonding of the species is such a fundamental driver for statism. It comes from the left, and this is why people on the right who want smaller government are sort of defending the nuclear family, and people who are on the left who are wanting to grow the government are hacking uh, away at the family in, in a variety of ways. Well, and, and selling sex, right? I mean, pe people on the right don't sell sex. People on the left sell sex. And most young men will just follow the sex and whatever ideological crap I have to spout is whatever I'll have to spout in order to get sex, right? So, you know, if, if you can get enough women in college to believe all of this gender stuff and feminism stuff and especially the radical stuff, then men are like, okay, well, that's what I need to say in order to get access to sex. Uh, so that's what I'll say. And it is... Um, it is a horrible virus. You know, when you get rid of the big rules, you don't get no rules. You get an infinity of tiny rules that just go on forever and ever and strangle the human condition. And so it has been a fairly conscious policy of the left to attack the nuclear family. And one of the things that I think is important is to recognize that if you are going to pursue our selected reproductive strategies – you're going to end up with totalitarianism. But that's just the way it works. Because if you have a nuclear family, you have far less crime, you have far less uh, dysfunction, you have far less uh, single motherhood, you have uh, all, all of these great things that produce a stable society which can get by on a minimal or ideally no government. But if you are going to have a society that um, pursues these R-selected reproductive strategies, it's going to be a complete catastrophe. And so for me, one of the things that I needed to do, and this was not, you know, this is a fairly conscious process for me, Max, but one of the things I really needed to do was these R versus K reproductive strategies are literally brain viruses. And they, not just brain viruses, but they, they adjust your entire system. And so for me, I had to get away from the R selected tribe. I had to get away from the R-selected tribe, from, from the Spray and Pray tribe, which is the tribe I grew up with. And I had to get to the K-selected tribe because these two are 
in a weird way, they're kind of like mortal enemies because if if like one tends to displace the other, and the spray and pray reproduces pair bonded monogamy, it displaces that through state power and through propaganda. You know, like all the families that are like the white picket fence and the leave it to beaver and all of that. I mean, how many people sneer at that and think that that's just pitiful and petty and ridiculous and embarrassing and bourgeoisie and blind and stupid and blah, 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 blah. I mean, the amount of hostile propaganda that I had both growing up, which was a lot of sour grapes from the destroyed families of the seventies. And also then through, uh, through high school and through through college and, and and even undergraduate school, you know, women are oppressed and men are patriarchs. Uh, I mean, it just just messes up the whole natural affinity and compatibility between men and women. And I had like I had to get away from that tribe. I had to get away from that spray and pray tribe because they are relentless and they are the source of are growing tyranny in many ways. I mean, it's a, it's a circle, right? I mean, there's propaganda, there's culture, there's anti-religiosity, there's, you know, which then enables this, and then they vote, and the politicians pander to them, and as soon as the, as soon as the, um, the spray and pray crowd get enough momentum, then they start taking over society. People appeal to them and, and so on, and they have, they have a lot to lose, right? I mean, if the government gets smaller, what the hell do I lose? Not much. In fact, I'm going to gain but if the government gets smaller, holy, the R-selected crowd, like the spray and pray crowd, they're kind of doomed. So they get pretty ferocious. And it is win-lose. Yeah, I, it is win-lose. Sorry, go ahead. I, uh, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not competent to ask. To, uh, to, I'm neither experienced nor read on the topic of, of open relationships or so. So I'm not, uh, certainly not advocating it. And I'm probably in your camp. I think the pair bonding is certainly what I'm most experienced with. The pair bonding child rearing is what I'm most experienced with and makes sense to me. But I just want to—I would be cautious about um, strawmanning that and during, during the false dichotomy of uh, either it's either spray and pray or it's uh, monogamous pair bonding. I'm, I'm, I'm only guessing that the Pollyann crew would suggest that there are um, loving relationships where there might be you know more than just the two, but maybe three or four or five or community um, type scenarios. It's, that, that would be that would be different to spray and pray. But I'm I'm not well versed in those arguments. I couldn't have that. But um, just be cautious about the strawmanning there. No, it's not binary. I mean, it's not like you're either one or the other. It's a continuum. And it's, you know, I mean, but but I think it's a, it's a to me, it's not a bell curve with everyone in the middle. Uh, to me, it's a double bell curve. And, you know, like Sofia Vergara lying on her back um, or front, I guess. Anyway, um, so it, it is a continuum, but, you know, I would, I would really be interested in knowing and, and people – you know, give me the data on this. I mean, from what I've seen, from what I've read, it's scarcely exhaustive. But I can't think of an R-selected strategy society that is not hierarchical. And I can't think of a K-selected society that's not less hierarchical. And I also can't think of a way in which it doesn't move together. Right? So as fatherhood as pair bonding has gone down, government has gone up. And as government has gone up, pair bonding has gone down. It's a sort of vicious cycle. Okay, I'd probably agree with you if you if you just phrase it slightly differently to 
loving parental environment versus non-level parental uh, environment. But again, I'm assuming the polyam crew would argue that two or three or four loving parents in a stable home could be even more advantageous than just two. Well, okay, so you can't have that many loving parents because parents is a biological relationship, right? So you can't have four parents unless you've got some weird gene splicing thing going on, right? Yeah, I'm, you can't, I'm, I'm you, You've got two parents. No, I totally agree from a biological level, and I don't really know the stats on this either. I'm getting this from something I heard you say: is that if you know, like adoptive parents are children work out reasonably as well as biological parents. Certainly, a lot better than you know, raising them in single parent homes. So, uh, again, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm not really out for their camp, but I'm just saying perhaps the polyam argument might be that they're actually, although you can't be have biological parents, but you can have parental figures uh, more than two, and it may be beneficial. I don't know. Oh, it would be hugely beneficial, and I would call those grandparents, and I would call those aunts and uncles. I mean, there's lots of research that shows the more positive role models that children have around who are parents, right, the, the, the better off they are. So I, I agree with you. I just yeah. don't think they have to be screwing each other in order for the child to have the benefit of you know, having a tribe of good and kind and nice and helpful adults around. Children require a lot of resources and, and having more – Adults around is is helpful. I'm sure. They I don't just need think to that once screwing. you bring once you bring, you know, the purpose of sex is not recreational. You know, this is this is the great. I'm not saying this then is your you're argument. Doing it wrong. This is no, no. The this is <laughs> the purpose of sex is not recreational. It's recreational so that it can make more people. Right. The, the recreational aspect of sex, like the the orgasm part of sex, is not the purpose of sex. The purpose of sex is to make new people, and the method by which it does that is making it enormous amounts of fun. And so to me, people who treat sex as recreational are not using it right. Because that, the, 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 the recreation part is, is to make people. Now, I'm not saying, of course, I'm a Catholic. Every time you have sex, you have to make a person or whatever it is. Because the purpose of sex um, is, is to also maintain pair bonding. And so this is why you know, your dick doesn't fall off when you lose fertility. as It also happens to men or why – you know, a woman stops wanting to have sex after she goes through uh, menopause. So the, the purpose of, of sexuality is to make children and promote pair bonding by releasing all the endorphins and goo hormones that keep us all happy in, in each other's arms during and after sex. Yeah. Now, it's, it's fun so that it makes people and it promotes pair bonding because it's fun. Again, and I'm just so saying, if sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say again. I, I'm, I'm just taking the polyam side of the argument here. Um, <laughs> again, you're using the word pair bonding. If you just reduce that to, let's say, connection and bonding as opposed to pair bonding, I'm sure the polyam crew would say yes. We have you know multiple people in these connected relationships, and you're right. Grandparents work, and you don't need to screw. But if we are screwing, it's not detrimental to the children. Well, uh, it is. It certainly is detrimental to the children as a whole. Why is that? Because either more children are being produced or they're not, right? Yeah. Now, if you have, let's say, four people, let's call them Ross, Rachel. Uh, let's say you have four <laughs> people and they're all having sex and no one has any birth control. So there is a challenge, of course, of knowing which child is yours. And like it or not, we have biological preferences to our own children. 
Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that uh, it doesn't mean that uh, adoptive parents can't be wonderful parents and all that. But you know, it, I'm sure it doesn't come as a shock to anyone who knows anything about biology and evolution that we prefer genes similar to our own than distant from our own. That's kind of why we we have species and why we have brains and why we right, why we've evolved and all that. Right? It's gene preference. And so, if they're all having like you got four people and they're having sex with each other, then there is going to be less bonding because nobody knows whose kids are whose. Well, I guess the women do, but the men don't. And it's been pretty well shown that when men don't know their offspring, they're much less likely to invest resources in that offspring, right? Because men want to keep their genes going, just as women do. But women, as Strindberg noted in a play many years ago, women always know that the child is theirs, but men don't, certainly prior to DNA testing, which is when all of this stuff evolved. So if if a, if a father does not know that the child is his, then the child is going to receive less or fewer resources. Yeah, that certainly makes now, sense to the, me for sure. Yeah, so th- this is why the polyamory stuff, I mean, you know, it's fun. I get it, right? I'm sure it's quite exciting. But it's not using sex the right way. It's using sex as a recreational vehicle when the recreational vehicle is not the purpose of sex. And again, I'm not saying it's wrong or, or anything like that. It's not immoral I mean, as long as everyone's being honest and so on about – STDs and feelings, right, and and plans and purposes. It's not immoral, but it's certainly not beneficial to the children because the children get less commitment and fewer resources. So, like I said, what you said makes sense to me, and I've heard stats um, saying the same kind of thing. How do you reconcile that with adoptive parents being raising equally successful, happy children? Because well, that, motivation is higher, right? And right? why, why so, is the so motivation higher? Because they because they've adopted parents. They're adoptive parents, which means they've gone through significant bureaucratic and legal hurdles, not to mention cost, perhaps, to, to become parents, which means that they really, really want to become parents. And so because their desire is that much higher, uh, it's likely that they're doing as, as fine a job. Yeah. Again, just – I mean, what I mean is if you if – you, sorry to interrupt, but if, if you just randomly distributed, quote, excess children – randomly across the population, we would not assume that to be better, right? But, yeah. but the self, it's a self-selecting group of people who really, really want to become parents and are desperate to become parents and therefore are likely to really invest well in their kids. Yeah, it makes total sense. Again, just for the spirit of the conversation, for the polyams, I w- they might say that they are, yeah, we've chosen this environment, we've chosen the loved ones, and uh, we, we've committed to this and we're really, really excited about all the children that this posse is going to have. I don't know how they word it. But... Um, so, so, so again, I, I, I'd really love to uh, if you had this conversation with someone who knew what the hell they were talking about. The polyam world is doing, no. Listen, doing what you're saying, but but look, anyone can say anything, right? Right, and and I mean, sure, say what you want, but biology is biology. You know, the the and there will be people, there will be dads, quote dads, who heavily invest in children who aren't their own, right? I mean, you, you're just talking about exceptions, right? Well, I mean, I think the the criteria, the important criteria, which you kind of spelled out, was was desire and knowledge, and you know, they they went into it hoping that they would have children out of it, understanding that they would not be theirs, and in the in the adoptive situation, it worked out quite well. Maybe in the polyam environment, you could enter it into it in the same way, and that would work. And if you went into it in the wrong way, it would not work. And I, again, I'm not experienced in this, but I kind of think this is kind of true with the polyam stuff. I, I would guess that probably 90% of them are in it for the wrong reasons and it's actually childhood trauma and, and all sorts of things going on like that. But 
I don't know. Because I don't know if there's any research done on this, but there's perhaps there's a maybe a relatively small minority where they're in it for the right reasons. They're doing it very well. And maybe it's working very well. I don't know. It just all depends on how you approach it and if you do it well or not. Yeah, and, and because they're not initiating the use of force, I don't really care. Right. Right. I'm, I'm just telling you what the biology seems to indicate, which is, which is best for the children. It doesn't mean that – right. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention about adoptive parents as well is that they go through rigorous tests to see if they're fit parents. Right. right, they have to show. They usually go through training. They have to show that they have the resources and 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 the, you know. So it's you know every as, as Keanu Reeves says in Parenthood, every butt wielding asshole basically can can become a parent. Right, so you can you could have just got out of prison, and you don't go back to prison for having a kid. But if you have just got out of prison, there's no way they're going to let you adopt a baby. Right, so um, adoptive parents are just better selected. Right, than self selecting people. Yeah. Sounds good. Stephen, I um, Let me just mention something. My... Sorry, just, just before we end, let's see here. Um, so uh, there's an article, Monogamous Societies Superior to Polygamous Societies. Um, in the abstract, they declare that normative monogamy reduces crime rates, including rape, murder, assault, robbery, and fraud, as well as decreasing personal abuses. If polygamy, as a friend of mine once observed, if polygamy is awesome, how come polygamous societies suck so much? Uh, case in point of Saudi Arabia, everyone assumes if it didn't sit on a pile of hydrocarbons, Saudi Arabia would be dirt poor and sick. As it is, it sucks, but with an oil subsidy. The founder of modern Saudi Arabia was a polygamist, as are many of his male descendants out of about 2,000. The total number of children he fathered is unknown. The major sons are accounted for, blah de blah de blah So um, there is, uh, a, you know, if you want a stateless society, you have to promote monogamy. It doesn't mean that everybody who's not monogamous or everybody who's polyamorous is like some enemy of freedom. You know, we're, we're talking about the mean here. You know, it's, you know not, not everyone who smokes dies of smoking, right? I mean, there are exceptions to, to every rule, almost every rule. But the point is, is that if in society you want a stateless society or a smaller state society – Biologically, statistically, and factually, you must promote monogamy and pair bonding because that's what produces stable, uh, peaceful, nonviolent uh, children. And there's no way around that that I know. And again, this is not to say – I mean obviously not everyone who's monogamous is an anarchist and not everyone who's polyamorous is a communist or anything. I'm not trying to say that. You know, if you, if you want a really great basketball team, you're not going to have a lot of Chinese guys on it. Doesn't mean that there aren't great Chinese basketball players, but like seventy percent of the NBA is black. So, you know, at least until affirmative action comes in for white and Chinese guys, which I think is just about to be put forward by Al Sharpton for obvious reasons. But the reality is that that once you understand these R and K selection strategies, um, the reproduction strategies. And you understand the effect it has on on kids, and all of that is really uh, is really important to understand. You, you simply can't shortcut it, um, and and so you you know this idea that without anarchy we just end up with like this free for all is not true at all. I mean, society needs structure, children need resources, and and people need stability to raise children. And any society that's not concerned with raising children is not a society we need to worry about for very long because they're not going to reproduce. 
But um, uh, in 1985, GDP per capita in highly polygamous countries, $975, uh, but as close to 3000 for comparative monogamous countries. Uh, North America, Western Europe for the same year, almost 12000 Again, this is uh, from uh, 1985. So, um, so somebody said, so then a, poly- a polygamous relationship of one man and two women is just dandy then because the man knows – it's his child. But again, people are just looking at individuals here. So it, it, let's say you have a society where half the men have all the women. So if you have not just individuals, we're talking at a social level, right? Individually, a single mom might be able to raise a pretty well-adjusted kid. And of course, married families might screw them up completely. But at a social level, in an aggregate level, it's not good to have single motherhood, right? I mean, so people always, this is sort of, I'm not saying you're prey to this, but when you start talking individually, yeah, I mean, so some of the biological conditions of providing resources for your children is um, is dealt with in a, in a um, polyamorous, polyamorous relationship of one man and two women. Sure, I accept that. But when we're talking at a social level, if this is the general pattern, then 50% of the men are going to have 100% of the women, right? I mean, just let's pretend that everyone gets involved or whatever, right? But what that means is that you have a huge cohort of men who aren't getting married and aren't raising children. And the men who don't get married and don't raise children tend to be problematic for society. They tend to get involved in crime more. They tend not to be as ambitious. They tend like, They just don't tend to contribute as much. And again, it's not true for everyone, but in general, if you have a large cohort of men who cannot get access to women, then you have a pretty rough tribe in your neck of the woods, and that's going to be huge. So again, individually fine. I'm talking at a social level. At a social level, uh, polyamory really doesn't work, and it doesn't work for children um, very well at all, and I don't think it works emotionally in the long run for the adults. But yeah, individuals – you know, go get your cabin on the mountain type and get your uh, get your freak on. So that would be um, that would be my thought. Awesome! It's been an absolute pleasure, Stefan. Thank you. Thank you for the call. Very very interesting, and uh, I look forward to everyone's feedback in that. Oh, Max, you want to plug your stuff before you go? Oh, um, let me think. Well, uh, my YouTube channel's actually got a lot of um, cool stuff that the the uh, free domain radio crowd would be interested. In. So that's youtubecom council. Um, yeah, lots of freedom-orientated stuff, anarchy stuff, how society will work without a government. Lots of, I'm also a Bitcoin expert, lots of Bitcoin videos on there, so I think they'll really enjoy it. All right, thanks, Max, and uh, everyone check out his channel. All right, up next is Travis. Travis wrote in and said, I have a 21-month-old baby boy who's just awesome, peaceful parented, no yelling, never spanked, etc. My son sometimes hits us with objects or his hands. He does this most often when he's tired. He's a little slow on his verbal skills, so it could be just him getting frustrated, can't communicate verbally, wants to go to bed, yada, yada, that kind of thing. Um, The hitting has become a more rare occurrence, and I'm not sure um, if it's something else in his development or the full reasoning behind it. The main question is, how should we react when he does hit us, when he kind of lashes out in this way? (laughs) Um, I'm sorry, I'm not laughing at, at the situation. Um, 
at all. And I'm, you know, I understand that's that's troubling, and I don't mean to sound insensitive. But the reason that I I laughed a little there was that you have a thought about manipulation rather than honesty, right? How should I react? Well, my question is, what do you feel? Yeah, it's it's kind of there's a lot that happens when he hits us because it's it's frustrating because um, I don't you know obviously I don't want him to be hitting us, but I understand um, from his point of view that he's frustrated and just trying to communicate in some way. Um, well, I mean, <laughs> that's. I mean, how, how do you know that for sure? Um, well, I mean, the, the occurrence of him hitting us goes down when we're more attentive to when he's getting tired and stuff, rather than if we let it go too long or something before um, putting him down for a nap or sleep. Then he'll... No, but, but I'm sorry to interrupt, but you, you bring up a very, very interesting question here. And I don't, obviously, in, in this as in most things, I don't have any exact answers, but it's a fascinating question. Which is, if he's just acting out because he's tired, then it's not rational for you to get hurt or irritated or annoyed or angry, right? Right. So, so then you have then you have a problem that that you're ascribing motive to something that doesn't have any motive to it. In other words, he's just tired, right? Now, if he's just tired, then emotionally, you shouldn't be really annoyed, right? Like, I mean, if if your child is six months old and, you know, accidentally pokes you in the eye, you're not going to be angry and say, damn it, why did you do that, right? I mean, you'd be hurt, you'd be upset, but you wouldn't be like you malevolent little beast or something like that because, you know, kid can barely control his own motion at that point, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, if my daughter, if we're sort of playing around and I keep asking her to be careful, and then she's careless, that is a that provokes a different emotional reaction in me than if it's completely out of the blue, like completely unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way that if you you know, if your child knocks over a glass of milk at dinner time, well, that's too bad, right? But but if you say to your child, I'm gonna move this milk away because I don't want it to get knocked over, I'm gonna milk it move it out of arm's reach and then your child moves back and says i'm going to be really careful and and then knocks it over i mean you're going to be more annoyed right yeah yeah so i don't like so your annoyance is saying something different than your empathy and that's the fascinating question i wouldn't be so quick to dismiss the annoyance and embrace the empathy any more than i would be to say embrace the annoyance but not the empathy right because you have these two poles one of which is ascribing some level of responsibility to your son and part of you is not right i it's it's more so that i'm 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 worried that it like that the hitting and the stuff will continue right like cuz he's at an age right now where he doesn't really he you know you ask him to stop and you know he's kind of borderline understanding um so <sighs> It's not that like I'm telling him not to, and he does, and then I get frustrated because I know he understands what I'm saying. It's kind of pre that stage. Well, how do you know though? 
Because again, if you listen, like knowing when your children are changing, I mean, I don't mean to give you something so obvious. I mean, obviously you're a fine parent, but knowing when your children are going through something different is usually trackable by your emotions, right? Yeah. And if you dismiss your irritation at your son's hitting, you are dismissing his responsibility for hitting. Now, obviously, when he's a baby, that's appropriate. When he's 10, it's not. At yeah. some point in the middle, it begins to change. And I have found it very helpful for me as a parent to track my irritation to find out if something is changing. If right, Because you, your, your kid's brain is growing at a ferocious rate. You know, when a baby is born, the brain consumes 75% of its calories, and it's like a third the size that it is when they're like five or six or something like that. Your, your kid's brain is making like tens of millions or hundreds of millions of connections like every day. And knowing when they begin to develop moral responsibility is a fascinating question. And I have found, I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's an indication or it's a rough rule, it's a rule of thumb. I have found that my irritation is a pretty good measure of a child's moral responsibility. In other words, I'm, just not, I'm not going to get irrationally angry at a baby for poking me in the eye. But at the same time, if my daughter knocks over the glass for the third time after promising not to, it gets like, and she's five, that's kind of exasperating because she should be able to do that by now, right? Yeah. It means that she has a capacity for focus that she's not exercising. So when, when, you know, when I first started to help her get dressed or whatever, you know, I would dress her, obviously, right? And now, and then, and then for a while it was like, you know, okay, go get dressed, get your pants, bring them here, right? That kind of stuff, right? And I get it. She was like three or whatever. But now she's old enough to, to get dressed for the most part. Mm -hmm. And so if I have to keep reminding her, I get annoyed. And the annoyance is my signal that at least part of me believes that she has the capacity to concentrate on getting dressed but is not exercised that capacity, which I never would have inflicted when she was a year or, you know, 18 months old or whatever. Mm -hmm. So your irritation it – it's, it's not exactly a perfect oracle, but remember, your entire emotional apparatus is developed to be good at parenting, right? This is something that because I was surrounded when I was growing up by parents who weren't very good at it, your entire emotional instincts and apparatus are kind of dedicated to being good at parenting, to reading where your kid's at, to helping them develop, right? The, the, the parent and the child are in a symbiotic relationship that is as ancient as life itself. And they're there to help each other. And your kid gives you signals and, and you, your instincts give you signals. And it's, very, it's a very deep process. And, and having sensitivity to your, quote, negative emotions in the role of parenting, I have found to be an essential guide for gauging at least what I think of as her level of moral responsibility. Again, it doesn't mean that it's absolute and, well, I'm irritated, therefore, you know, she's doing something wrong. But I wouldn't dismiss it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And even if he's tired, that doesn't mean, I think your instincts are saying, okay, well, he's tired, but that doesn't mean he has zero moral responsibility. Right? Because, because if you, I'm not saying, you know, 22 months, obviously, it's, he's young. 
But if you were to continue, and I'm not saying you would, but if you were to continue giving him excuses for being tired, then you would be undermining self-discipline for him, right? Because if he says, well, I'm not really responsible because I'm tired, then he doesn't need to develop self-discipline when he most needs it. That's that's a really good point, yeah. I mean, yeah. So now that we know that you hit when you're tired, you're more responsible for not hitting when you're tired. Not less. Like, the, the, the excuses usually, I mean, in my experience, parents make up excuses because they want to avoid conflict, right? And because yeah. sometimes it can feel odd to say to a 22-month-old boy, what you did was not nice. I don't like that. It makes me upset. It hurts me. And to show the child that, that to be honest with the child, and, you know, I don't say to, like with Isabella, I say to her clearly, it doesn't mean I'm right. It just means I'm annoyed. Right? I'm not telling you this because you're wrong and I'm right. I'm just telling you because I always want to be honest with you. I'm, this, this upsets me what you did. And, she, you know, if she's ever tempted to say, oh, I'm sorry, I said, no, 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 I'm not, I'm, don't apologize. I don't know if I'm right. I don't know, like, I'm just, but I'm telling you, honestly, this really bothers me. I mean, uh, the other day she, you know, as kids are wont to do, you know, I said, uh, you know, it's time to, time to head to bed. And she sort of jumped across my lap to pin me down and her elbow went across the bridge of my nose and you know, eyes watered and all that. It was painful. I knew it was a complete accident. I mean, I knew she was not being hugely careful, but, you know, that's fine. And she's, I mean, she sat down very seriously and she said to me, Dad, I mean, I, you need to know, and I know you know this, she said, but you need to know, I never, ever will hurt anyone on purpose. Anytime anyone gets hurt, it's always by accident. I would never, ever, ever even imagine hurting somebody on purpose. And uh, I said, I mean, I, I know that. I appreciate that. I respect that. I love that about you. I think it's completely wonderful. And uh, I know it was an accident. You know, we can always remember to be a little bit more careful. But at the same time, I don't want you to feel like you have to walk around, you know, wrapped up. And I wrapped her up in a little blanket like this where you can't move so nobody ever gets hurt. Uh, it's a balance, right? So we, we talked about it. And um, it, was, uh, it was helpful. So your irritation might be very, very important for your son. So if he's got hitting when tired, then that's something that you need to have him understand to make the connection. And then once he understands and makes the connection, then he can't hit when he's tired anymore. The whole point of making that connection is so you don't do it, right? I mean, I don't drive well when I'm drunk. So don't drive drunk, right? I mean, that once you make the connection, then you don't do that, right? And, you know, whether you need to draw it out or act it out or bring out hand puppets to mime it out, oh, you know, Judy's sleepy. <laughs> she gets, you know, whatever, right? Um, then I, th I think that you do want to start introducing, you know, we need good habits when we're tempted by bad habits. And if tiredness makes him feel aggressive, then that's, a, you know, what you need to start layering in is that, oh, you're tired now, you know, and it's all about the preparation, right? So you talk about it with him when he's not tired. I noticed yesterday that, blah, 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 blah. You know, do, do you think that's true or, you know, and whatever, you know, I know he's 22 months or whatever, you can, you can draw it out. And, but then next time he's tired, you say, do you remember we talked about, you know, what happens when you're tired? You know, 
I hit. Okay, so let's remember that, right? So that we don't hit, even though you're tired, right? And that's when you start layering in the self-discipline. It goes back to the first caller who basically was asking, what is the purpose of self-knowledge? Well, the purpose of self-knowledge is to adjust yourself or your environment to greater compatibility with right action. And uh, so does, does this make, make any sense at all? Yeah, because I, I was kind of thinking like, um, you know, how early is, is too early to, to, you know, be honest with your kid about, um, you know, the, the hitting and stuff like that? Because like, obviously... When you, feel, oh, when you feel annoyed. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Because, because that's honest, right? You don't, again, trust your instincts. And I'm sorry to interrupt, but it, it, that bothers me. You it just hit me. That bothers me. I don't like that. And again, it doesn't, I'm not saying you're bad or wrong. or I'm just telling you, I don't like that. That makes me unhappy. It makes me angry. And you don't do it with, and therefore you need to stop it, right? Because you're simply being honest about your feelings. And as I talk about in real-time relationships, the free book at freedomainradio.com slash free. Having feelings is not being a dictator, right? Having feelings does not mean that you're right, and it doesn't mean that anyone has to change what he or she does because of your feelings. All it means is that you have those feelings, and to express feelings without conclusions is, to me, the essence of invitational intimacy. And if you hide your feelings from your son... I don't think you're doing him a lot of good in the long run. And again, we, we most of us who are raised badly don't know the difference between having feelings and having demands, right? Don't know the feelings, don't know the difference between having feelings and giving orders. Because for a lot of people, if you have a feeling, that is a command to other people, right? So if you feel sad or you feel bad or you feel whatever, right? There was a car commercial I can't remember, a year or two ago. And it was a pretty edgy commercial. And it was basically talking about how clean this car was, like how how little pollutants it put out. And it was about a guy who wanted to kill himself by locking himself in the garage with the car running, which you know produces enough, what, carbon monoxide or something like that, that, that you end up dying. And he didn't die because the car burns so clean that it didn't produce enough pollutants to kill him and he was fine and whatever, right? Now, that's I'm, – I'm not saying the, the, the commercial was even in good taste or, or you know, whatever, but – and it certainly was pretty edgy. But, you know, some woman was like, you know, oh, you know, it, it, uh, I sobbed, I, you know, because my father killed himself by locking himself in the garage and this and that and the other, right? And, and, and running the car until he asphyxiated and so on and I was sobbing, I was rocking back and forth, I you know, I couldn't even get up to turn off the TV and, and so on, right? And this was like, well, you can't have that commercial, right? Now, again, I, I'm not defending the commercial. I mean, I, I don't think I'd ever make anything like that, even if I was in the ad business. I, you know, I'm not sure that suicide is ever a good way to sell anything. But this idea that something upsets me, therefore the world must change, is so ingrained in us. You know, and it, you know, it comes from governments and gods, right? I mean, when gods get angry, yeah, you better damn well change, right? Uh, and when governments get angry, well, you, you you go to a gulag or whatever, right? And so this idea that when you have power, your emotions must be dictatorial to others, that other, like you, 
if, to have emotions is to have other people change to to make negative emotions go away and promote positive emotions, right? You know, it makes me happy when you give mommy a hug, you know? Okay, so do I just hug you because – like then, then, you know, happiness – the demand for happiness means the demand for hugs. You know, hugs must be provided, right? Or it makes me unhappy. You know, I get very angry when you don't do this. It's like, okay, well, then I should do that. You don't bring your dishes. That makes me angry. But the idea that we can express our feelings without them being any demand or requirement for other people to change a thing is kind of counterintuitive, but I think the essence. And so if you say to your son and express to your son, it bothers me. I, I don't like that. It, it, you know, if you're honest with him and then say – that's, you know, well, however, I don't know, 22 months, it's, it's tough to, you said his language is a little laggy or whatever, but, you know, just even, a, you know, an unhappy face, kids are very good at reading facial expressions. And so I think if you are just, you say, well, how, how should I react to it? You already are reacting to it. I would just say react to it transparently and honestly, but without the demand for change. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that's it's definitely a, a a good way to look at it because th- that is something that I've struggled with with my childhood was, um, you know, succumbing to emotions rather than you know, you can have them and no one needs to change anything, right? Um, yeah, no, I mean, I I grew up with the same same kind of environment, you know. Like, I'm very unhappy, and therefore you need to to change, and that that's not intimacy. That's just bullying. I'm not saying you're a bully or whatever, but right. that's. You know, but that's that's the kind of mindset that we need to break out of, because then, you know, our feelings, we can't be intimate because we're trying to control other people with their feelings. They've become tools rather than statements of honest experience. Right. Um, my my wife's here as well. Um, I wanted to let her talk a bit. She she wanted to maybe explain the the approach that she took, and I think it's it's better than the one I was taking. Sure. Hello. Hi. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Um, well, that's kind of when you were talking about uh, how to, you know, talk to Corbin, who is our son. Um, that's kind of what I normally do is I, I kind of get down onto his level and I take his hands and I say, you know, we don't hit people. You know, that we don't like to hurt people. Uh, you know, if you don't want to be hurt, then don't hurt other people kind of thing and try to explain to him just why we don't hit not necessarily that we not that we just don't hit but why well but you see but you're giving him rules rather than telling him about your experience yes and it's not really working right yeah because if you say we don't hit that's actually contradicting what just happened which was he did hit yeah because right? so, i've heard i've heard parents say that same thing you know like the kid whacks the parent and the parent says we don't hit it's like i think he just did right <laughs> I mean, it's like, we don't drink whiskey, cheers, right? Yeah. I mean, I think we do, right? So saying we don't hit is confusing because there is no we. And also it's not giving him the empathy, I believe, empathy grows when we see the emotional impact of our actions on other people. Rather than they gave us a rule called don't hit. Yeah. Right? So if you say hitting hurts and you're saying it sort of very gently – He's not going to hear the hitting hurts. He's going to hear mommy's not upset. Mm. Right? Whereas if if um, uh, if he hits you and you show him you're honest upset, 
that I think is going to teach him a lot more about empathy than rules. Because if you have the empathy, you don't need the rules. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've never had to say to my daughter, don't hit other children. Mm-hmm. Because if, if you have the empathy and the empathy is the emotional effect that the other person has on you, that's how you teach them empathy, that your actions have a strong emotional impact on me. And so if you show your son the emotional impact that his hitting has on you, which is obviously shocking and, and hurtful and so on, that I think will teach him much more so than abstract rules about the effects of, of hitting. Does, again, I just want to, because I can't see anyone on yeah. this show, I, to keep asking, does that make any sense or are you completely rolling? No, you know, no, that, that really does make sense. It's uh, it's a bit hard for me because I, I grew up in a, a very violent household. Um, sorry. Well, sorry, my dad was very violent and my mom looked the other way and didn't think anything had happened. So it, it's very hard for me to not resort to it initially with anger to begin with because that's that was just how I grew up was initially you get angry at things. Uh, so I really worked very hard on myself to not take that uh, as a first, you know, um, response. Uh, so it's, I, it's more hurtful deep down, right? Yes. Like it's it's very um, – it makes you incredibly vulnerable and, and hurt when yes. your son hits you, right? Yes. And and I think if, if that is communicated to him in an honest way – I'm not saying, you know, pump up the tears and throw yourself in a ball on the floor or anything, right? But your genuine experience of, oh, that makes me feel hurt and, and angry and upset. Then he's going to be like, oh, wow, this has an emotional impact. But if you come back with rules, I think – like rules are a way of shielding yourself from the vulnerability of being hurt, right? So when we get hurt, we often re- react with rules as a kind of shaming tactic. And it, it avoids the vulnerability of, of showing that we're hurt. Yeah. Well, I, one way I did, I tried in the very beginning, um, but unfortunately it seemed to make him hit me more, <laughs> was uh, when he'd hit me, I'd, I'd kind of be like, ow, ow, that hurts, mummy. And kind of do that, but then he thought that was fun and would go at Yeah, yeah, no, because, <laughs> because even when you're saying it, that sounds almost like a game. Yeah. <laughs> right, because it's the tone of voice, whereas if it's like, ow, that, that, that really, really hurt me. Like, all seriousness, right? No smiles, no, like, that really hurt me and upset me. Um, that, I think, will have a lot of uh, uh, impact. It's almost like uh, overacting is even worse. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, because it's got to be genuine, right? You don't fake any of it, right? Um, it's got to be genuine, and I think that's when he'll see the effects of his actions uh, on on others. And because, um, you know, if he gets – and I'm sure he will, right? But if he gets the mirror neurons, right, if he, if he can feel what other people feel, mm-hmm. you won't need rules. Yes. <laughs> I guess that's very true. <laughs> Whereas if you if you go for rules without the uh, empathy, and look, I'm not saying you don't have empathy. I'm not saying he doesn't have empathy. I'm just sort of giving you real extreme, ridiculous scenarios just to, for for clarity. But if you go for the rules without the empathy, then he may conform to the rules, but it, it won't be the same as him genuinely getting what the action does to you emotionally. Yeah. And also to talk about it outside of the moment is important. 
you know, we're all so busy as parents that it, it often just becomes so reactive, right? Like, oh, you know, I got to cook, I got to clean, I got to make dinner, I got to wash up the dishes, empty the dishwasher, all, all this. And so then we don't talk about it, but then the next time he hits. But the important time to talk about hitting is when he's not tired and not hitting. Ah, uh, yes. Right? So the next day, because you, you want to reinforce it when he's not already in an aggressive state. So that he's not defensive when he you talk about it, right? Yeah, when he's in a different mindset. Yeah, and you know, you could say, I've noticed when you get sleepy, pow, 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 you get punchy, right? And now that we know that, we should, you know, how how can I help you, right? How can I like, well, you know, get get the child enrolled in this in how to make the solution, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's uh, it's so often about imposing these defensive vulnerability avoiding rules and then getting frustrated when the rules don't stick right but if you get him enrolled into you know i you know i don't want you to hit me do you want to hit me and he's going to say no right um and you know well how can we how can we how can we get that how can we get no hitting yeah and And, well that's the thing is i don't want him to live by rules (laughs) i want him to do what makes him happy not worry about what the rules of the world are per se i also don't want him in right. jail <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, get that. I get that but i mean if, if you're just going to teach him rules you're basically teaching him how like what he can do when he can get away with it yeah right and that's that's the great challenge with rules is uh okay well if mommy can see me then that she's going to impose a rule but if she can't there aren't any rules in other words it's not internalized <laughs> I know that all too well. What do you mean? <laughs> oh, that's just a, I, I was like that as a child. <laughs> oh, right, right. If you're right. turning yeah, your no, back, I mean, I, I'm going to do everything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if if you know, my daughter's candy is all where she can reach it, and she's had candy there. Like we had to just throw it out because it was from like last Halloween. <laughs> So um, because we've, you know, been boring and annoying and diagrammed diabetes and cavities and fatness and all that kind of stuff. And and so it's not like she doesn't want candy or whatever. She does, but she's pretty good at, at not uh, not eating it. So uh, and again, I'm, I'm sorry to be annoying like, oh, it's all solved here. You know, these are all challenges that the parents continue to work on. And just when you've solved the last set of challenges, an exciting new set come along. So, you know, I'll call you next week and ask you how to deal with this or that but uh but at least that's the stuff that 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 I worked with in terms of uh, of aggression i mean kids try strategies right i mean they they just you know they're like octopuses feeling along the coral you know they're just trying a variety of strategies what if i try being nice what if i try crying will that get me what i want what if i try hitting will that get me what i want it's not it's not bad like in terms of like they're being mean they're just trying a variety of strategies to get what they want. They're probing the social norms and the cultural norms and the tribal norms that are around them to figure out what they need to do to get what they want. And uh, because, you know, they don't have a lot of power to get what they want, they often will try, you know, whining or crying or aggression or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that those are perfectly natural things for children to try out. You just, of course, want to select them so that they're doing the stuff that's more productive in the long run <laughs> in some ways. Sorry, I, I I just got back. I was looking after our son here. Oh, oh. I wasn't I wasn't part of the conversation. Out of the show too. So I'll have to listen to it later. No problem. Does that? Uh, I want to do uh, one more call, but does that sort of give you uh, maybe an approach that might be helpful? Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, it's Fantastic. it's a known thing for me to um, 
use uh, emotions as demands rather than things you can listen to. So, um, yeah, that, no, and, that, and makes trying to turn around, yeah, trying to trying to turn around the ship of state, so to speak, is is pretty tough. You know, it, it is like a super tanker trying to turn around how many generations of aggression and dysfunction. At least on on your wife's part, as you, as she mentioned, right? I mean, t- turning that around is is hard. You know, like what what you guys are doing is incredibly heroic and so foundational to not only making your son's life, of course, a better place to be, but making the world as a whole a better place for everyone to be. I mean, just recognize you're you're taking on a huge task here. It's incredibly courageous, and and, and these these are the little challenges and. I only say little relative to, I don't know, splitting the atom and um, <laughs> inventing plastic. But, but these are the sort of big personal but little worldwide changes that I think are, are what is necessary to, to really change the future. So, you know, fantastic work in philosophy and good good for you guys for everything you're doing. It is incredibly heroic for you to break this cycle. Thank you. Thank you. That really means a lot. Um, I'll let you get to the next caller. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks. Bye. All right, up next is Nick. And Nick wrote in to say that he has a 16-month-old daughter and looking into alternative education methods. Um, His wife and him are now training slash learning in the Waldorf education philosophy. And his questions are, do you have any thoughts on Waldorf education model? And uh, in your study of philosophy, have you delved into the work of Rudolf Steiner at all? Uh, I don't think Steiner rings a bell. Um, but I, I've certainly looked into the Waldorf thing, uh, and uh, it seems pretty great. I mean, it's it's democratic. Uh, it, it mixes ages, which seems to be pretty essential for the development of, of empathy. There's a lot of self-study uh, and self-starting stuff that goes on. So uh, I think it sounds uh, it sounds pretty great. Uh, what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, so far we've uh, we just really stumbled across it over the last six months. I've been listening to the show for a while. Um, Heard about your views on uh, early child or you know daycares and uh, some and homeschooling and found out uh, with the Waldorf program um, a lot of homeschooling um, takes the curriculum of Waldorf and incorporates it into it. Um, so we've kind of immersed ourselves into it, but there's so much information. I visited some of the schools and they're really unlike anything I've ever seen um, as far as public schools or. Um, just the philosophy involved um, seems to fit really well with uh, developing kids. A lot of fr- free play from the age of zero to seven, um, and then it's a structured curriculum. So it's it kind of mirrors some of the aspects of uh, Montessori early on, mm. um, but it has more structure, um, I guess, to the program. Uh, progressing up through the ages so and i had uh i thought you might have heard of it i hadn't heard you mentioned it until i went back and heard a podcast where uh there's a, a journalism college student who was into protesting um and i heard you mention it in there so that was the first mention i had heard of it um so i was just kind of curious where you uh what you knew about it you, you mean the Waldorf stuff yeah yeah, as I said, I mean, I, I think it sounds it sounds pretty great. I mean, boy, you know, for sure, it'd be nicer to go there than boarding school. So, um, yeah, I think it's uh, I think there's you know a lot of opportunity for mentoring, 
and mentoring younger kids. You know, I, I mentioned this on the show before a number of times. So I'll keep it very brief. But when you get kids of a like age together, they tend to be pretty competitive. And there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, everybody wants to measure themselves against their peers and, and see how they're doing. So they tend to be pretty competitive. And that, of course, co- competition and empathy kind of not on the same side of the spectrum of human emotions. Uh, both, both I think, can be important and helpful, but they generally don't occur simultaneously because if you're in a race with someone and you empathize with them wanting to win as much as you wanting to win, it's going to blunt your capacity to win because uh, only one if you can win, right? So when you are in situations where the things are win-lose rather than win-win, then empathy uh, is, is a liability, uh, and, you know, it's the old thing uh, George Patton said, uh, you know, the, the purpose of, of war is not to die for your country, but to make the other poor bastard die for his country, <laughs> not <laughs> yours. And so in, in win-lose situations, of which there are many in society that are perfectly legitimate and healthy. Um, so if you want to sell someone a car, empathy is a good thing. If you are trying to win a legal battle, then empathy is a bad thing. And uh, so there's things that are complicated when it comes to competition and empathy. One thing I do like about schools that mix ages is then you tend to get mentoring rather than competition. There aren't a lot of like nine-year-olds who really want to compete with five-year-olds. And so you get nurturing and mentoring, which develops empathy. And so to me, the mixing of ages together is really beneficial for kids. And that's one of the big problems with age-segregated schools, like government schools, where it's just for the convenience of the teachers and not the benefit of the kids. So uh, I think uh, I think it certainly gets my my vote from that standpoint. Again, I'm certainly no expert on it, but it seems uh, it seems pretty great. Yeah, one of the cool things that they do is um, the teacher stays with the class as they progress up through um, grades. Um, the reason I was asking about Rudolf Steiner is he was the one who. Uh, created this um, method of of education, and he was a turn-of-the-century philosopher, Austrian, um, polymath. He wrote thousands of works on um, biodynamic farming, but he does have a slant to his uh, um, philosophy of spirituality, and I know that I've heard you um, touch on some stuff related to that. And I was just curious if you had heard of this anthroposophy or theosophy um, and any of that type of philosophy, if, how, I guess how that would be incorporated into um, Western philosophy in your eyes. Yeah, I, I really, I, I don't think I could give you anything intelligent on that. Okay. I mean, I could make something up, but I try not to sure. <laughs> in general. So I don't think I could give you anything truly intelligent about that. I mean, I'm always a bit concerned about the word spirituality because it is not a philosophical term. It has as much relationship to philosophy as it does to physics. You know, what is the spirituality of the moon? Well, I don't know. Um, (laughs) It doesn't really make much sense to even ask the question. So in terms of empiricism and and philosophy and all of that, it is really not a, um, a, a, a... if, uh, spirituality is not really a very helpful term. And in general, I found the word spirituality to just mean I, I want to have some irrational beliefs, but I don't want to call them irrational. So I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, dress them up and call them spirituality uh, because uh, that is uh, a nicer way of saying irrationality. 
you know, like faith is a nice way of saying ir- irrationality or anti-rationality in a uh, in really its most fundamental way. So I'm always concerned, you know, I, you know, I want people to call things by their proper names. And, uh, you know, if people say, well, my spiritual belief is, you know, reincarnation and karma and, and stuff like that, it's like, nope, those are not spiritual beliefs. Those are anti-rational arguments. And, you know, just, just call them by what they are. Don't, don't use some sophist title. I'm not, I mean you, right? But just don't use some sophist title for what is essentially just a commitment to anti-rationality. I mean, what possible evidence is there for souls leaving the body and being reincarnated in new bodies? I mean, that's not just anecdotal or whatever. Like, oh, I knew a guy who, right? But uh, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. It's like you know, I was reading somewhere recently that they said, ah, we have finally proven um, psychic phenomenon, and it's like, oh no, you haven't. I mean, <laughs> of course you haven't. I mean, unless there's been some massive evolutionary leap over the past six months because any i mean imagine imagine what an incredible benefit it would be for a hunter-gatherer society to have psychic abilities i mean so that they could surround prey and plan attacks and win battles against you know food and foe without having to talk to each other they could just mentally communicate what they wanted i mean that that genetic adaptation would rule the world in like two generations because they would be so victorious against everyone else that that gene would have just spread like wildfire, whatever genetic capacities or whatever biological capacities we would have for a psychic phenomenon. I mean, it wouldn't be, well, it shows up once in a while randomly and, you know, it it can't be controlled and all that. It's like, no, no, no. If there is any capacity for any animal to communicate with another animal telepathically, that animal rules the planet. And so the idea that it's just sort of latent and in there and so on, I mean, it has to be a biological capacity for it to be real. And the idea that it's just sort of lurking around there, it's possible, but it's randomized and all that. It's like, no, 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 no. Nature would grab that and totally run with it. So, um, yeah, so I just sort of have some concerns about the word spiritual because usually it's just a cover for things that make no sense and go against reason and evidence. But I don't want to say that they make no sense and go against reason and evidence. So I need a a $10 word for a 20 cent prejudice. Definitely, definitely agree. Yeah. I've had a hard time wrapping my head around a lot of the stuff, um, that they, uh, classify as this anthroposophy. Uh, one cool thing that, um, they do focus on studying, uh, mythology, um, whether it be, uh, Greek mythology, uh, Norse mythology, Egyptian mythology, uh, from age seven to 14. And I don't know um, if this, it seems like this storytelling somehow fosters uh, the kids at this age. He kind of, the way he lays it out is um, he has paths uh, that the kid kids go through at certain ages. They learn certain things. So I was just, uh, I know some people um, complain and say, well, this, it can't be a public school because they're teaching um, uh, religion or something, but they're also, but they're also studying many different types of uh, mythology, and I guess I'm just yeah, I'm trying to trying to grasp my head around uh, what benefit that could be, you know, once my daughter's older. 
Yeah, I mean, I obviously studied some mythology. You have to if you're studying English literature at the college level because, I mean, in the same way you have to know the Bible. Because uh, at least until recently, this is where a significant amount of literary references came from. They came from the Bible and they came from mostly Greek and Roman mythology to a smaller degree. Norse mythology, but um, stories and literary allusions and so on came from the mythological traditions, which, of course, I would classify religions uh, as uh, mythologies and mythologies as old fiction. <laughs> it's fiction with dust on it and probably a spear through it and probably currently on fire with divine wind. But um, so that there used to be a significant uh, value in terms of understanding literature. There was a significant value in knowing the older mythologies but I think that's mostly gone by the wayside. And now the mythologies tend to be zombies and vampires. And it's, it's, it's pretty new stuff. And uh, it's not, uh, doesn't have really the time-tested seasoning of thousands of years old stories. But yeah, it, it used to be pretty important to study that stuff. I mean, I guess at one point it was important to study Latin. And uh, I think most of the mythologies have gone by the wayside. That having been said, it's just popped into my head that there have been a bunch of movies that have come out about Greek mythology uh, recently. Uh, Percy and the something something and uh, uh, some of that stuff. Uh, so, But uh, it, it's not really as, as important to study now, I think, as it used to be. I, th I still think it's good, good to study. I mean, this is part of our Greco-Roman tradition, our Judeo-Christian and Greco-Roman tradition. But... Um, it's not really, I don't think it's studied as much anymore, but I think there's value in it. But it, there's just, one of the reasons sometimes people teach mythology and religion is to pretend that the two are separate. You know, like, here we're going to study Greek mythology, and then we turn to Christian religion. And it's like, uh, I don't know that that's entirely justified, <laughs> logically. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm tangentially related to the, uh, well, related to the Waldorf and uh, my my wife's uh, daycare centers. Um, so in the Waldorf school, they stress uh, no reading or writing till the age of like six or seven. Mm. And uh, in her centers, the parents really, um, the parents want the kids to be able to write their letters and be able to read start reading and, you know, start processing this information, you know, as young as like three and four. Um, mm. So I know like a lot of times it's like, well, the more the parents always are thinking like, I want my kid to know the most. It's almost kind of the opposite approach. And I was wondering if you had read anything on that um, or know what, what your thoughts were on that delaying the reading and writing process. Um, it, uh, it, I mean, I've talked – I know a little bit about this. Like I've talked to an educator or two about this, and um, there are some – I think it's in the Scandinavian countries. They don't really start teaching reading until seven uh, or so, but then they don't usually have kids in school until six or seven. So um, the capacity for letters is uh, quite individual to, to my understanding. In other words, it's not like, well, every kid is five, and therefore it's good to teach them letters. Some kids are interested in them earlier, and some kids are interested in them later. Uh, and usually until about maybe seven or eight, it's usually not 
an issue. Now, if the kid is still eight and not interested in letters, then uh, I think that's more uh, of an issue that might need to be addressed. Now, if you try to get children to do letters too soon, they can become averse to it. And if, uh, you know, I don't think generally there's a problem with withholding it, but if you try to get them into it too soon when their brains are not ready for it, then it's a, uh, it's a real challenge. But if you can, like if you wait until the moment is right, uh, then I think it's a, a, a pretty fast and easy process and the kids will naturally draw towards figuring all that stuff out. You know, like half the time I'm coming into the room, my daughter is with a pen and paper going p- Regularly, she's trying to figure out what she wants to write down, and all of her butterflies have voice balloons now and are telling stories and this and that, and the spelling is usually quite interesting <laughs> and, and logical. But unfortunately, that's not the language that we have in many ways because it's developed over time. So um, I don't think that there's necessarily a, a, a right time in general to teach letters, but uh, I think that if you wait till the right time for each child, then I think it becomes a lot easier. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, hey, I know you're an uh, IT um, expert, or you you worked in uh, the programming field. Um, one thing I heard about this Waldorf is they're very popular in um, San Francisco and Marin County and all in California, and a lot of the tech, um, the tech bubble or well, tech industry people send their children um, to these schools. I know the Bill and uh, Melinda Gates Foundation funds Waldorf schools. Um, But one of the things they stress in Waldorf schools is not to let uh, children use tablets, computers, Mm. um, or no television, um, limit television. Um, Have you heard anything along those lines uh, with development? Yeah, I mean, I've heard some things, uh, and again, some of the data is is pretty raw. And Steve Jobs didn't let his kids have an iPad, and uh, I mean, he and <laughs> you know, he's sort of foundational the creation of them. There does seem to be uh, some challenges. So, so some schools have worked really hard to try and get tablets and iPads and notebooks and all that into school, and they found that uh, kids are so drawn to them that they end up decaying on social skills, going outside, running around, and hands-on stuff. So they get very good at swiping and not very good at manipulating, right? Because swiping is a two-dimensional activity. And unless you're in Dora the Explorer, right, It's you need three-dimensional, like, manipulation, pens, crayons, plasticine, uh, whatever, Lego. You need manipulation helps to grow the brain, and swiping is just two-dimensional. And, you know, t- tablets are just so engaging, and it also doesn't help kids overcome frustration, right? If you get frustrated at something, you just switch to another app or go browse the web or go chat with your friends or whatever. So it doesn't teach them a lot of keep going until you push through that uh, that frustration. So I've heard some recommendations um, about uh, uh, screen time as a whole. Uh, I can't remember exactly what they are, like an hour or two a day when they're young, max kind of thing. And uh, I think that there is, you know, I don't want to sound crabby or anything, but I think there is a little bit of a tendency sometimes for parents to use screens as babysitters, right? I mean, I don't think this is anything particularly shocking uh, that I'm saying, but uh, I I think it it does happen. Like, you know, just go watch TV. I've got to make dinner, right? It's like, well, maybe have the kids in the kitchen and chat with them, right? Uh, the, the, the challenge of parents is to compete with an increasingly technological world, right? I mean, I have to make it so that chatting with me 
is even more enjoyable than grabbing a tablet. Um, I don't, I don't forbid my daughter um, screen time. Uh, she she used to watch some TV. Um, she hasn't watched TV in I think at least a year now. And she used to like going to movies. She doesn't like going to movies at all now. Uh, and uh, you know her big thing is is drawing, which I'm you know happy to sit down and you know there's like three things I can draw, and I'm sort of trying to branch out, but it's pretty embarrassing. If it's not a shark, a spaceship, or a volcano, I'm you know <laughs> sort of out of luck. But um, so. Uh, I think that there are real challenges for uh, technology. Uh, technology displaces conversation in general. And, you know, as I, as I keep saying to everyone who will listen, to me, the essence of family life is the conversation. It is the talking. It is the chatting. And it's fine to sit down and play a game like my my daughter likes creating levels in in games, so we'll sit down and we'll create a level or two. But we're chatting about that and chatting about like sitting and chatting about stuff that you're doing is not it's not bad or anything. But to me, that is not the same as having a conversation. Like you know, if we go to the Santa Claus parade and we say, "What a lovely float," or you know, whatever that it's fine. I mean, it's not bad, but it's not the same as having a conversation. Having a conversation is we sit down and we just we talk. And we're not talking about something that we're doing or watching. We're just talking about wherever the conversation takes us. And that is, to me, the the big challenge of, of parenting, or at least my parenting, is to make the conversations more enjoyable, more compelling, more rich than anything that burps and beeps and lights can offer her. And that doesn't mean like I, you know, we can't ever pick up a tablet. I mean, we do. But it does mean that I recognize that when we are on screens, we are not facing each other and talking about what's going on in our minds. That we are helping each other to to figure something out, or you know, try this, or maybe we need that. And it's fine. Again, there is some of that in life. You know, I mean, if you got to sit down with a bunch of people to build a bridge then you're not talking about your thoughts and feelings that much. You're trying to solve the problem of building a bridge. So I'm not saying that that's bad, but I try to not have that be the default and really try to work on making sure that we are connecting as people uh, about thoughts and feelings. And when we sit down for those conversations, I mean, they can last like half an hour, sometimes even an hour. And that to me, that's the meat and drink of family. That's, uh, what I'm in it for. That's what it's all about. And uh, I think that parents sometimes don't think about that as much or don't have as much, you know, like it's family time. Let's go to the zoo. Oh, look, a coaxial, <laughs> right? I mean, and again, the zoo is fine. We go to zoos and, and it's nothing, again, I'm not trying to either or, but to me, family time is, it's even better than than dinner because, you know, you've got dinner you know, someone's getting up to get something, someone needs a glass of something, and something's going on, right? But uh, I uh, I really am in it for the unstructured, open-ended conversation time. That's, that's my drug of choice. And uh, I don't have any problem with 
tablets as long as that's not what people think of as you know we are connecting does, does that make sense yeah definitely uh yeah and you touched on a lot of uh great things your your advice and on uh, parenting has really guided me uh as a parent and I know when you were touching on the chemo thing earlier, um, my mom went through the same thing eight years ago. Um, she's stronger than an ox now. She's competing in triathlons. And uh, I just wanted to say to you and the uh, other listener who's going through it, stay strong. And uh, I love you, brother. Well, oh, thank you so much. That's great to hear. Um, I, I always like to hear the success stories, so uh, I really, really appreciate that. And so I guess we'll call it a show for tonight. I just wanted to thank everyone so much for calling in. As as always, uh, it is a deep, deep thrill and an honor. You guys bring out the best in me, and uh, uh, I hope that I, I help bring out some good stuff in you. So I hugely respect, admire, and thank everyone uh, who calls in and um, – uh, if you'd like to, of course, to help out the show, fdrurl.com slash donate. If you'd like to kick in uh, something to help us grow, I would massively uh, appreciate that too. And thanks again to uh, Mike for running, I think, his third great show. I'm just kidding. Um, hey. <laughs> hey. <laughs> yeah, th thanks so much, everyone. Have yourself uh, a wonderful week. I guess we will uh, talk to you on the day of Saturday.